This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll be honest. You know, I'm as patriotic as they come. I love this country, and I love uh, trying to come up with ways to make this country better. Uh, get very proud of things like American supremacy and American leadership in things like space exploration is a reason we talk about it so much. But um, one thing I really just never get too into, and I'm at least a casual sports fan, one thing I never really get too into is the Olympics. When the Olympics are on, every year or every two years or every four years, if we're talking summer versus winter, I feel like I do the same thing. I, wa- I end up saying, all right, this is the year. I'm going to try and pay attention to the Olympics. And then I'll watch the opening ceremonies. And then maybe I'll keep it on in the background as I'm working or as I'm listening to the radio. And I don't, I don't really pay any attention to it. And whatever. It is what it is. However, uh, I don't know if you're in the same boat, but. There's one thing that the Olympics does do for a sport. Once your sport is in the Olympics, it's kind of the real deal. It's sort of official. It's basically a real sport. It's not relegated to the fringes. You know, I talked about this with Warner Wolf. We spoke about how a lot of people are trying to get pickleball in the Olympics Competitive eating, which is still considered by many to be kind of a a carnival attraction, some sort of a sideshow, that I don't think is likely to become an Olympic sport anytime soon. Although, I mean, look, I'll be honest, look at look at the sport of curling versus don't you think competitive eating is just as much, if not more of a sport than curling? I do. I do. But it doesn't have that Olympic recognition. Well, now. There is a new sport. It's not a new sport, but there's a new sport that the Olympics is considering adding to the games. And the people pushing for the inclusion of this sport may surprise you. The sport is flag football. Now, if you're not a football fan, flag football, uh, as I understand it, and I've played it, is basically the exact same thing as regular football, only to end a play, you don't tackle a player on the opposing team. You you take a flag. It's almost like two-hand touch football. You take a flag off of their person, and that's their way of ending the play. And, um, you know, I have a son, and if he's interested in football, I'm going to encourage him to play flag football because it's a lot less likely to result in injury especially head injury, but any number of other injuries. And, you know, I I wouldn't want my son at 10, 11, 12 dealing with a head injury that he has to contend with for years. Now, we've been talking about the issue of youth football and injuries for a long time. You remember when Brett Favre did that commercial? We talked about it, and I think we did. I expected to do 10 minutes on it. We did a whole hour because people were so passionate about it. Uh, Brett Favre did this commercial discouraging parents – from allowing their children to play tackle football. And I think flag football is a good alternative to that. 
Here is what in, what's interesting about flag football. The people pushing to include flag football in the Olympics as early as 2028 in Los Angeles is the National Football League. The National Football League, the professional sports league, the dominant professional football league, and there are other professional football leagues that are out there. You have the XFL that's trying to make a comeback. You have the USFL, I think, that's trying to make a comeback. You had arena football, which folded. I think they're always talking about trying to bring that back in some form or another. But NFL is sort of the top dog. And that's a tackle football league. So why would the NFL, which is a league that is entirely dominated by tackle football, why would they be the ones pushing for flag football? Thoughts, comments, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. So the NFL wants to attract 50 million new international fans over the next 10 years. And the growth of flag football is apparently essential to accomplishing that. Here's a quote from Damani Leach, who is with uh, who is the COO of NFL International. He was on uh, CNBC. He said, we've got to make the game matter. If flag football becomes an Olympic sport, more countries will invest in it. Now, football has not so much as sniffed the Olympics since 1932 in Los Angeles. Isn't it interesting? It all comes back to Los Angeles when uh, the games they're trying to get it in is 28, and the last games that there was even a whiff of football was 1932. Particularly interesting because, Matt Blaze, what football team won the Super Bowl last most recently? The Rams. The Los Angeles Rams. Very good. You follow football or no? You like a casual fan, Somewhat. Right? Casual Somewhat. Casual fan. A um, little bit. I would say a little more than a casual fan, a little more. but not super crazy. Okay. So, um, yes, that is right. The Rams did win the Super Bowl most recently. Keep that in mind for later, if you know what I mean. Football has not so much as sniffed the Olympics since 1932 in Los Angeles when it was a demonstration sport. But in 2013, the International Olympic Committee recognized the International Federation of American Football as a governing body, which is a key step in eventually getting the sport to the Olympics. The IFAF, the International Federation of American Football, I'm not going to repeat that every time, IFAF, has 74 member nations and sponsors. Major events like the Men's and Women's Flag and Tackle Football World Championships – so the NFL's Olympic push here is its latest, but hardly its only effort, to bring flag football to the masses. In fact, it has been quietly, shh, building up this sport for years. So for youth football, NFL flag has been around for almost 30 years, and it is the nation's largest flag football league with over 1,600 teams and 500,000 athletes. As of 2018, more kids were playing flag football than tackle football. A big way of reaching out to girls and women. Last year, the NFL partnered with Nike to
to incentivize states to offer girls high school flag football. It also worked to bring the sport to college. Professionally, the NFL Network helped the American Flag Football League get off the ground in 2018 with a broadcast partnership. So the American Flag Football League has grown enough since then that it recently announced its men division will become professional beginning in 2023. So what we're watching here is not only what the Olympics does here, but flag football's next big moment could be right here. We could be on the precipice of flag football becoming not only a major participant in sport, but a major spectator sport. And given the problems that we've seen with tackle football, I don't think that's the worst idea. So this summer in Birmingham at the World Games, which fe- that they're going to feature the sport for the first time, thanks largely to the presenting sponsor. Any guesses as to who that is? Right. The NFL. So why is the NFL doing this? The NFL, which is a tackle football league, why would they be spending all this time, all this money, all this effort in building up flag football? What's it all about, Alfie? 800-848-WABC. Would you like to see flag football in the Olympics? And do you think that maybe the NFL is recognizing the inevitable? that um, they know that the players that are playing in the NFL now are going to be dealing with years of traumatic brain injuries that may result in lawsuits and large insurance claims and players' careers getting cut short. And maybe when we're having this conversation on the radio 20, 30, 40 years from now, maybe we'll talk about the NFL as a flag football league. I know it sounds crazy, but 100 years ago, Football looked very different than it did now. You know, even a few years before that, football was very popular, but it was very violent. Uh, Players actually died during the game. And Theodore Roosevelt, who was the president um, in the early part of the 20th century, he actually threatened all the colleges and even the professional football exhibitions such as it existed. And he said, I'm going to ban this game. You guys either figure out a way to fix this or I'm going to ban this game. And no one knew if a president could get away with banning football, but they didn't want to find out. When the Rough Rider said he meant business, he meant business. So they made a whole bunch of changes. And it's a different game than it was at the turn of the 20th century. So on the one hand, football is football, and more people are participating in any version of the sport is beneficial for the league. On the other, the NFL embracing flag football is – in a way, acknowledging that its own product is dangerous. Part of the growing popularity of flag football is a direct result of the safety concerns of parents like me have. 800-848-WABC, that's 800-848-9222. We have an action-packed show for you. Again, um, just happens to be a week where we have a lot of guests this week. I, uh, I like shows with not a lot of guests, but sometimes there are just a lot of interesting people to talk to. Molly says she prefers the show with a lot of guests. I think it's because that means there's less time that she has to hear me uh, complain. And w- whenever my when I whenever I start complaining, you just never know where I'm going to land. One day it's plastic on top of the toaster oven. 
the next day, it's it's something else. You just never know. So uh, it, we have an action-packed show coming up in about uh, 15 minutes. Alan Tonelson is going to be here. I don't know why we haven't spoken to Alan in a little while. Alan was uh, a regular on this show when we first started, and he's one of my favorite writers on economics and national security issues. He's going to be here. We're going to talk UFOs with Dr. Turi. Uh, this guy is phenomenal. I have been trying to get Dr. Turi on the radio for 10 years. Ever since I first saw him on William Shatner's show, uh, Weird or What, you might have heard him on some other radio shows as well. He's almost like a modern-day Nostradamus, a British historian, columnist, broadcaster. Timothy Stanley is going to be here, and we're going to talk about uh, tax day. Yesterday was tax code, uh, tax day. It hurt to have them yank that $2,300 out of my bank account yesterday. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Man, oh, man, it's Shevitz. 800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Tom in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank. How are you? Um, I can't. I, first thing I want to say is I can't wait for Mr. Turi. I, I really enjoy uh, UFO discussions. Uh, well, thanks. But, uh, yeah, that's coming up at 220. So be sure to I tune in. Wait. Thank you. Uh, perhaps the NFL is pushing flag football in order to get uh, more people into football. Uh, in order to recruit players who show promise, you know. Plus, it gives football a new platform. Uh, when other countries play flag football, you get a more diverse recruitment options. What do you think? Well, I think uh, I think that's certainly part of it. I think it's certainly part of it. Mm. But if that were their if that were their goal, why wouldn't they be making the same investment in in youth tackle football? Actually, they do in in uh, Switzerland. When I, I went to school in Switzerland, I was oh. an exchange student. They had a football team there, and it, it's, it's sponsored by the NFL. Uh, it's all over Europe. It's, it's European football. League. It's very good. And the NFL is big on that over there. But um, I don't know how much uh, – I, I do like the idea when you're talking about the flag football as in order to not have as many injuries possibly. I mean, that's a really good uh, good idea. I like that uh, thought kind of. Well, uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, only time will tell how it works out. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hey, how are you doing, Frank? Doing wonderfully. Thanks for asking. Okay. Um, first of all, I've never seen a flag football game, so I, I don't understand the concept. You said something about a fact that you have to take so do you, the flag that, you've seen a, a regular tackle football game right absolutely okay it's my favorite sport oh great okay. okay have you ever seen a two-hand touch game no okay so uh, the way two-hand touch works or touch tackle is when someone touches you with two hands that player is considered tackled and the play is over okay. the way flag football works and it's been a while since I've played it. But the way a flag football works is you have a flag um, tucked into your uniform, basically. And once someone mm-hmm. grabs that flag off of you, then you're tackled. So they don't have to tackle you to the ground. To end the play, they just remove the flag from your person. Okay. And other people can't gang up on the player that's wearing the flag and help the other guy out? Um, is, no, is, I guess that's that's a good point. That is one big difference from tackle football. You can have three people tackle a player, but it's really difficult. I guess you could have one hand each on the flag and have two people try to yank a flag. That's, that's certainly true, but you're right. You don't have that sort of team tackling aspect of it that you do in uh, tackle football. Okay, can I make one other comment about it? Give it a shot, Mary Beth, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I love 
the NFL, not the organization. I love football, right, professional right, football, right. high school football, college football. Um, I would just hope that they would spend more money on research to create a helmet that would protect the players more in regular football. Is that a possibility or is that something they're not even going to think about? That's a good question. And uh, I think they I've actually heard things about that already. That may be in the pipeline as well, but it doesn't appear that the NFL is advertising their commitment to safer helmet gear or safer headgear the same way that they're being very open about sponsoring and investing in flag football. But I'm going to investigate that a little bit further. I have a friend, Anna Isaacson, that works with the NFL, who is in charge with some of these initiatives. I'm going to reach out to her and see if she knows about the the answer to your question. It's a great question, though. 800-848-WABC. Bernie is in central New Jersey. Hello, Bernie. Hi, how are you? Doing just fine, just peachy. Wonderful. So I wanted to make a few points that I think that flag football, it is a pretty intense sport, but I don't think we'll ever be able to um, come close to a real football game simply because a real football game is just so much more action and more contact and that's what people love about it I, look other, uh, you're right well, you're you're right about that Bernie you're right I think uh, it, it is a different game flag football is certainly a different game right but I think another a big important point is that a lot of people a lot of people idolize football players and Part of being a celebrity in the sports arena is is more is the the risks are part of it. I think that I'm not condoning people getting head injuries, but I think part of the fact why people like the football players and like to watch them is because they just they go in there and they just they just do it. It, it, it's sort of maybe some of the same appeal uh, in watching a uh, NASCAR race. And waiting for a, tr- a, r- a wreck? Exactly. But it's a little different because you're not waiting for the wreck. It's simply the fact that there's veer and they're understanding that that could happen and they're going in anyway with the full force that just gets the gets the people going. I got you. Hey, makes sense to me, Bernie. Bernie, thank you. 800-848-922 if you want to weigh in quickly before we get to Alan Tonelson. we got eight, eight open lines, so we'll be able to get you right on now. Uh, coming up next hour, we're going to go through your mail. We don't have much in the way of snail mail today. I guess they didn't drop off whatever the contents of the P.O. Box were. If you ever want to send me snail mail, you could do so. P.O. Box 1777. Uh, just send it to my attention. New York, New York. Um, one. I'll get the I'll get the P.O. Box. But um, the P.O. Box is uh, 1777, attention, Frank Moreno, New York, New York, 10163. P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. So if you want your email read uh, on the air between now and next hour, you can shoot me an email at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabc. Radio.com. You can also uh, send send us something on Twitter. My direct messages are open at Frank Morano or through our show's Instagram page at 77 WABC OSOM, other side of midnight, OSOM. And we also post a lot of interesting videos on there as well. 
So you can contact us any number of ways. And if what you have to say is interesting, uh, whether it's critical or laudatory, especially if it's pithy, we'll do our best to get you uh, involved in the show and you can have your voice heard. Sometimes people ask a question. Sometimes people offer feedback. Whatever the case may be, uh, you're certainly welcome. And uh, we're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Hey, we'll take a break and talk to Alan Tonelson in just a minute. He's one of my favorite writers on the economy, on national security. There's a lot happening, and those areas are intersecting like crazy. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, it's always a real treat to be able to talk with Alan Tonelson. His blog, Reality Check, it not only covers economics, national security, technology, and more, but it's a blog that I steal. Anytime you hear me sounding rem- remotely coherent or that I might know what I'm talking about, that's because of a thought or some analysis that I've stolen from Alan Tonelson. So if you want to skip having to listen to me and just go to the few lucid moments for each show that I have. Just read Alan Tonelson's Reality Check blog regularly. He's also been a former advisor on trade issues to both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders when they were presidential candidates. He's an author. He's done a whole bunch of interesting things. Alan, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, Frank, thank you so much for that very generous introduction. And as usual, your musical selection is spot on. That's right. Are you a uh, are you a Jim Morrison fan? I was not an incredible Doors fan, but I certainly grew up during that period, and their music was a big part of my adolescence and college years. So right. I, I certainly, I, I, I certainly appreciated the role that the Doors played in the development of American rock and roll. Absolutely. So I have been following a great deal of uh, your writing on the Ukraine situation. It's caused me to uh, challenge a lot of the assumptions that we're getting from. Um, many in the mainstream media on Ukraine. Give me your analysis of where things stand now. It appears to be getting worse in terms of violence and in terms of death and in terms of people losing their homes by the day. And where do you think we go from here? What's the best case scenario? Frank, I have to tell you, I have not been as scared um, about the uh, possible outcomes of a global foreign policy crisis um, as I have with this Ukraine crisis since the since the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and I think 
that I'm even more scared because whereas 9-11 um, was the result of a so-called non-state actor, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda, which after all had, had, had fairly limited capacity when all was said and done to do damage to the United States, this Ukraine crisis involves a nuclear-armed superpower, Russia, that's got 6,000 warheads. And, my, my, and, and what I'm most worried about is the violence, the fighting, spilling across Ukraine's borders onto the territories of new members of NATO. And of course, since they are new members of, of NATO, countries like countries like Poland and the Baltics have a, have a legally ironclad defense guarantee from the United States, which means that we could very easily be facing the prospect of U.S. troops and Russian troops squaring off, confronting each other directly. And of course, that always raises, that, that, that inevitably raises the prospect of escalation to the nuclear weapons level. So where do we go from here? What is the best case scenario from the United States point of view and from Europe's point of view? The best case scenario from the American point of view uh, is really something that a lot of Americans, understandably, are not going to be happy to hear about because we have all, of course, been incredibly impressed and incredibly admiring of the courage and skill that's been shown by Ukraine's military in fending off Russia's attack. But having said that, the best course, I think, for Ukraine and for the United States and also Europe is for President Biden to finally show some interest in pressing Ukraine to accept major compromises to end the fighting. Because ending the fighting is the paramount U.S. interest precisely because of its potential to spill across borders. Uh, that is precisely my view. But whenever I've mentioned it on the air or I've had other guests say something similar to what you just said, inevitably what I hear from folks is some version, and look, this is difficult logic to argue with, mm. that that would be appeasement. That would be capitulation to an aggressive dictator. That would be rewarding uh, Putin for his actions in invading his neighbor on a, on, on a Chamberlain-esque level. Why is that argument about appeasement not something that holds water with you. Why wouldn't this just encourage Putin to invade another country? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that that we're in a situation with this Ukraine conflict uh, where there are no good choices. There are no good choices morally, that's for sure. And there are very few good choices strategically. There are only bad and less bad choices. And what I'm trying to think of is the least bad choice for all parties concerned, but especially the, but especially the United States. And and there's no question that the course of action that I'm recommending would entail appeasement. Would it entail appeasement on a Chamberlain-esque level, as we saw back in 1938, when, when Britain, led by former Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in France, basically gave Hitler the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia and therefore whet his appetite for further conquest? 
I don't think that's the that's the that's the scenario uh, that's that's remotely likely to unfold at all. Precisely because Russia's military has proven itself to be so incompetent, and it is unimaginable to me that that a country that is having so much difficulty winning or, or even holding it, its own in Ukraine, which which it outnumbers population-wise, which it which which it outguns by every single measure of military might that you can think of. If Russia is having such difficulty quelling Ukraine, how on earth could anybody imagine that it's going to be in any kind of a shape to attack more countries once this conflict ends? If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Alan Tonelson. He is a, a trade expert and a blogger over at Reality Check. If you just type into Google Alan Tonelson and Reality Check, it comes right up. You can also go to Alan Tonelson, T-O-N-E-L-S-O-N, dot WordPress, uh, dot com. It's a little amazing to me. I don't want to color your answer, but it was a little bizarre to me, quite frankly, that this is the precise moment in world geopolitical history that we're now talking about adding even more countries to NATO, in this case, Sweden and Finland. Uh, What's your view, Alan, about the movement to expand NATO in general and to Sweden and Finland specifically? To be fair, we have to recognize that that the main impetus for Sweden and Finland joining NATO is not coming from Washington. That was the case when the alliance expanded back in the 1990s and early 2000s. I mean, clearly the former Soviet bloc countries wanted to join, but what was much more important was that Washington was really pushing this under Bill Clinton, under George W. Bush, and and under under Barack Obama. Um, today we have the, the very interesting situation that Sweden, a long-time neutral country, of course. Uh, in fact, we have to remember Sweden even stayed neutral during World War II. And Finland, which had been Finlandized, as the expression went, for decades, which meant that Finland actually accepted limits that were imposed by the Soviet Union on its foreign policy, and and in particular on its ability to join military alliances that Moscow did not approve of. But both of those countries, it's it's incredibly understandable um, that they're looking at what Russia's doing in Ukraine, and they're listening to Putin's uh, to Putin's speeches and various writings about restoring Russia's you know place as a great power. Uh, his allusions to restoring the Russian Empire, and you can certainly see why they're very interested now in actually joining NATO. So again, I I I, I can't blame Washington for this. Um, I think in the long run, it would be a, a, a pretty serious mistake for these countries, but it's very difficult to criticize them too emphatically right now. In terms, one interesting thought that I had not seen, and it just struck me as interesting mm-hmm. because I haven't seen much in the way of unusual ideas over the last week, was from uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe in the uh, New York Times 
op-ed That's section this weekend. <laughs> Boy, you could have knocked me over with uh, a feather with that one. I, I didn't say okay. it was an idea I was endorsing. Uh, okay. I said it. it was different. That's uh, Okay. Uh, but so he proposed this idea, and this might be the first time that some of the listeners are hearing about this. He proposed this idea to have the United States liquidate Russia's central bank assets that could be worth as much as hundred $100 billion and are being held in the United States and then use that money to aid Ukraine in this war effort. What would the economic and the national security implications be of the United States basically trying to steal Russia's gold? I'm not certain how much that idea would really affect the situation on the ground in Ukraine, because as I understand it, the big obstacle to supplying Ukraine with all of the the weapons that it wants is not financial. It's clear that the United States in particular is willing to spend enormous amounts of money on arms for Ukraine. It's also very clear that the West European countries, um, although apparently not in quite so generous a mood, are also ready to uh, are also ready to step up to the table uh, to a very significant extent. The mere, the real problem is getting all this stuff logistically to the battlefield inside Ukraine. Um, um, what it's it's obvious, um, although although most of the details remain classified, it's obvious that that the Western supply effort is relying on relatively small trucks um, that can travel in enormous convoys or else they would be very conspicuous targets for Russian air power and also Russian artillery. So the the supply effort has been very impressive, but there's only so much carrying capacity that it actually has. And so again, the problem problem is not financial. There's no doubt that that steps like Professor Tribe has proposed would do further damage to the Russian economy. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself, how much more damage could it do? Because, because the sanctions already are so extensive with the very conspicuous and vitally important exception of energy imports. Talking with Alan Tonelson, he's a blogger over at Reality Check. I saw last night that uh, the MSNBC pundit Malcolm Nance has now gone to Ukraine to fight the Russians. And uh, I've uh, my former congressman, who's also a former Marine, uh, went there. Michael Grimm went there ostensibly as a Newsmax journalist. The next thing I see on Twitter, he's patrolling with a machine gun. Uh, There was an article in uh, the New York Times and the L.A. Times about the U.S. military veterans that are answering Zelensky's call to fight the Russians. Do you think it's a good idea for Americans, whether they're cable news pundits or uh, military veterans that most folks haven't heard of, to be going to Ukraine to fight right now? What I worry about is that their presence creates a great potential for hostage-taking. And hostage-taking would put Washington and the whole nation in a very difficult situation. Um, It would certainly make it much more difficult to ratchet up pressure 
on Russia if he held American citizens, if uh, Putin basically were holding American citizens at his mercy. So I'm not sure that's a really fantastic idea. And also, the uh, however however courageous these these actions are in terms of manpower they can't possibly make a big difference um because russia because the russian military so outnumbers the ukrainian military in terms of its actual personnel what ukraine needs most and president zelensky has made this quite clear is it needs advanced weapon system it doesn't really need manpower so again i think that these uh these us quasi mercenaries um they they're not going to really help that much and again they could cause tremendous problems for the american government where are you on the question of providing more military aid to the ukrainians I, I have real doubts about this precisely because the more aid that we supply, and this is a really tragic irony uh, that's been surrounding this war ever since it became clear that Ukraine, that its forces were much more capable than anyone supposed. Not only Putin, nobody in Washington expected anything like this kind of resistance, but the longer this war lasts, the more strange, the more successful Ukraine's military is. Again, the greater the odds that the fighting crosses borders and in, and goes into NATO territory, which would inevitably bring the U.S. military to bear. And the last thing anybody should want is a U.S.-Russia military confrontation because of of the potential for escalation to the nuclear level. And in this vein, let me make one point. I am so sick and tired of politicians and pundits on uh, across the entire political spectrum whining about how President Biden's reluctance to even think about U.S. troops is letting Putin basically set the whole agenda, is, is, is essentially letting Putin intimidate us, letting Putin... Uh, uh, um, control events. Um, that's true, of course, but in my view, any U.S. policy that meaningfully increases the chances of nuclear war between these two superpowers, which means increasing the chances of a nuclear attack on U.S. soil, is completely unacceptable. That is the kind of risk that we should never be running on behalf of a country that, however courageous, however admirable, is of no meaningful strategic or economic importance to the United States. I'm talking with Alan Tonelson, knows a great deal about not only national security, but economics as well. We've been hearing for a while about inflation. In fact, a lot of people are saying all the inflation talk is leading to more inflation. And uh, there's a uh, there's a variety of factors. President Biden has been very consistent, especially over the course of the last month, that one of the key factors driving inflation, especially in the energy sector, is this war between Russia and 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 Ukraine. This is what President Biden said uh, a week or so ago in Iowa. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide and 
a half a world away. And then he's made that reference a number of times, not the genocide aspect, but the the uh, Putin being responsible for driving up gas prices and inflation in general. Uh, what is the you're always you're a pretty straight shooter, ne- generally nonpartisan when it comes to analysis. What is your take on how accurate that is? Biden's claim that Putin is responsible for inflation. There is no question that the higher energy costs that are resulting from this Ukraine conflict and and in particular from the Western sanctions on Russia have been pushing up prices across the board. Um, energy is a major input, as economists like to say, uh, for almost every product and service that Americans consume. So if energy prices go up, the price of everything else is going to go up eventually soon as well. And so undoubtedly, the Ukraine war that Putin started deserves some blame for our current inflation and will keep deserving blame for inflation going forward until this conflict stops. And until global oil trade uh, returns to some kind of at least a quasi-normal state. At the same time, there's also no doubt that we were having worrisome inflation long before Putin invaded Ukraine. Inflation did not start February 24th when Russian troops crossed that border. It was it was increasing at, at, at rather robust rates for months and months before that. And one big, big reason has to do with, with, the, with that enormous economic stimulus bill that, that President Biden proposed early last year, and that Congress passed. It poured trillions of dollars into the American economy uh, that simply were not needed because the the because the pandemic emergency had clearly passed. Um, it sped up recovery. There's no doubt about that. But the cost of speeding up recovery, which was already proceeding at a very nice pace, in large part was this historic inflation um, that can be very destructive if, if it's not reined in soon. You wrote a little bit about uh, the IMF and uh, what they're what they've had to say on the question of inflation. I, I, I that has been an aspect of this debate that's largely been absent from the discourse over inflation. People have focused on the supply chain crisis. People have focused on energy. People have focused on COVID. Uh, even a few people have mentioned that stimulus bill that you just alluded to. I've heard very few people discuss uh, the International Monetary Fund. Where does the IMF interact with inflation? Well, the IMF was basically complaining that too many world governments, including the U.S. government, uh, were thinking about responding to the problems caused by excessive reliance on countries like China and like Russia for critical goods and services, mainly goods, of course, um, by bringing production back home, by relying more on on their own economy's capabilities to supply those needs than on imports and they were saying well this is going to uh this is going to to tremendously increase economic inefficiency globally and it's going to 
to reduce global economic output, including U.S. economic output, below levels that it, it would have reached it had trade remained free. And um, the problem is um, that the fund, well, there were many basic problems with this report, but what the fund really missed were, were, were two vital considerations. One is that, the, is that these measures, these so-called reshoring measures to strengthen supply chain security are not only being taken for economic reasons, they're being taken for national security reasons, they're being taken for health security reasons, to make sure that when we get hit by the next pandemic, whenever that is, that we're not caught short on masks, on ventilators, etc., and on the building blocks of most pharmaceuticals, which, after all, largely come from China. And we certainly don't want to be at China's mercy in that kind of situation. The IMF also completely missed the fact that when it comes to to the structure of its economy and its capability for for not only much more self-sufficiency, but self-sufficiently, but excuse me, but self-sufficiency while maintaining all of and and enjoying all of the benefits of competition, including lower prices, the United States is in a class by itself. The United States literally is the world, practically speaking, when it comes to the structure of its economy. We've got raw materials. We've got manufacturing. We've got energy. We've got technology. We have high-tech services. The only thing we don't have is uh, tropical fruit. And frankly, and frankly, um, we have such an enormous economy that, as I wrote in an article back in 2019, if Washington became serious about enforcing antitrust laws and making sure that we had even more robust levels of competition within our own economy, we would be able to reap virtually all 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 of those benefits of competition lower costs higher quality more innovation without relying on foreign competition to do the job there would be enough competition here at home and most countries are not in that situation. Most countries are not as fortunate as this country is. We are that fortunate. We should seek to capitalize on that advantage, and that hasn't been nearly a high enough priority of U.S. economic policy going back decades now. Uh, we're talking with Alan Tonelson. His blog is Reality Check. Check it out online. During the Trump administration, you and I spoke frequently about tariffs. Uh, you, me, and the president were largely on the same page, the former president, uh, on that front, even though a lot of economists on the left, on the right, were warning about two things. They were warning about severe inflation, the kind of which we're seeing now, and they were warning that um, that retaliatory tariffs in other countries would hurt American exporters. I know the Biden administration has tried to roll back some of those Trump tariffs. Where are we right now with respect to the tariffs that were implemented during the Trump administration? And what was the economic impact? I know it's difficult to maybe answer this because everything got sort of upended with COVID. What were the economic impacts of those tariffs? 
Well, first of all, the status of the Biden rollback is actually quite encouraging for those of us who I call trade policy realists in that the rollback has been very, very limited. Uh, we have to remember that even President Trump exempted uh, fairly significant numbers of, of Chinese imports, in particular from those tariffs. Uh, so these exemptions, the so-called rollback, that's nothing new. I, I myself was quite worried that Biden, who had a long record before entering the White House, of essentially coddling China, of championing greater trade with China, greater investment with, with China, greater economic integration with China, I was really worried that 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 Biden would be smart would be smart enough politically to understand that 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 waging what you might call a frontal attack on the Trump tariffs would be incredibly unpopular. So I thought he would go about it through this this rather stealthy process of exemptions. But again, they've been very limited, and that's been very encouraging. What's also very encouraging is that in terms of its what you might call vision, President Biden has now has now adopted the exact same China policy vision as President Trump did, and that is it is completely pointless to try to to to, to try to 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 use diplomacy or even tariffs to reform China. That's not going to happen. But tariffs can be incredibly useful in shielding. U.S. producers from predatory Chinese trade practices. And President Biden's trade representative, Catherine Tai, made that very clear in, in testimony that she gave Congress at the end, at the end of last month. Now, um, we haven't yet seen full follow-through, but the rhetoric, very encouraging so far. I'm just about out of time, Alan, but final question I have to ask before we before I let you go. Even though you no longer live in the New York area, I know you're still a Yankee fan. I'm a long-suffering, lifelong Met fan. Tell me, as a Yankee fan who watched Buck Showalter up close and personal for his entire tenure here, do you ever get over the fact that he never takes his jacket off? Why does he never take that jacket off? He's just a stickler for 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 professionalism and uh, and and protocol, and he's just an old-fashioned guy, and I really admire that. And frankly, there are have certainly been a lot of. of days this season when I wish Buck were managing the Yankees <laughs> rather than Aaron Boone. Uh, you know what? Uh, I uh, We could be doing a lot worse than Buck seems to be doing right now. Oh, my goodness. You're having, you're having a real solid year so far. We're hitting 229. <laughs> so far, so good on Jeez. both counts. Alan Tonelson, his blog is Reality Check. Check him out. Alan, let's talk again soon. I can't wait, Frank. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. We'll take your call straight ahead.
Love the OJs. You know, the OJs are still around, at least some version of the OJs. I realize it's not the original OJs from 1958, but they still sound great. I have said that uh, repeatedly, consistently over the years, that I think it would be great if they would get the OJs to appear at the Super Bowl halftime show and perform. Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, and I know there's this new movement within the National Football League to have the the entertainment appeal to uh, audiences of color, which, uh, you know, I'm certainly fine with that. But the OJs are, are black. Don't you think more football fans of all ages would rather hear a great song like this than hear Snoop Dogg? I, I do. I do. I agree. Well, thank you. And who won the Super Bowl most recently in my place? The Los Angeles Rams. The Los Angeles Rams, formerly the St. Louis Rams. You know, speaking of the OJs, if you want to see something really cool about the OJs, if you go to YouTube, Daryl's house, Daryl Hall from yeah. Hall and Oates. Uh, yeah, I've seen that show. It's pretty good. They do. He does one with the OJs. Oh, really? I haven't seen it. And they do that. OJ songs. They do Hall and Oates. That's cool. It's amazing. Really? Amazing. All would... of the Daryl houses that I've watched, they've had CeeLo Green. They've had um, El King. I like El King. Yeah, El King's been on that's with Daryl. And the OJs is great. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's good. So check that out if you're a fan of the OJs or Daryl Hall. Daryl's house. On the YouTube. I'll, I'll check it out. I can't vouch for Matt Blaze's endorsement of that, but how bad could it be? Right? Um, hey, still, hey, you know what I just realized? I was just looking at my calendar. The ratings come out today at, at noon. So fingers crossed. <laughs> Those of you that are that are in a praying mood from going to a lot of church or synagogue or mosques because of the holy season in which we've been in later, say a prayer for us. That 10 hours from now, when the ratings come out, they are just as robust and wonderful as they've been the last few months. Because we've been very fortunate and very lucky to have ratings dominance for uh, the last few months now. And uh, there's an old saying in radio, you're only as good as your last ratings book. So uh, I'm hoping that we get some more good news at noon. Fingers crossed. So fingers crossed. Say a prayer for us, whatever whatever it is you want to do if you're secular just wish us well. Uh, hey, we're going to talk with Dr. Turi coming up in a half hour. Dr. Turi is really amazing. Uh, a lot of people are saying he is this generation's Nostradamus. And he has made accurate prediction after accurate prediction, including Hurricane Katrina, including the terrorist attack in France. And he's really amazing. And his explanation for how he does it is similarly amazing. So uh, that's coming up in about a half hour. Uh, And if you're a little older, is the thing you need in your life a robot? Let's explore it. Until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. Well, it is interesting 
um, a lot of us have these smart speakers in our homes. I was reluctant to get them, uh, get them because uh, for I, look, whatever. I don't want to. I don't want to get into my paranoia about this whole thing. But uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, a lot of things I don't like about these smart speakers. I don't like the fact that they're listening to everything that I do. For the most part, I mean, I just I don't like that at all. Um, but look, you can't argue with the fact that they are quite convenient. I mean, it is nice to be able to while your hands are busy with something, you know, it is nice to be able to say, Alexa, play William Shatner. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of William Shatner songs start playing. It is nice to uh, say, Alexa, enable the 77 WABC skill. And then uh, all of a sudden the radio station starts playing. It is nice to be able to say, Alexa, volume 11. And it plays it plays a uh, whatever you're listening to much faster that uh, than uh, excuse me, much louder than is probably healthy. So. There are a lot of conveniences, and if you want to, if you want to say to your smart speaker, "What's the temperature?" or whatever else, it is. It is nice. I mean, I'm not downplaying the convenience. Like anything, there are some trade-offs. But now there is a big movement to have robots or artificial intelligence apply to being marketed towards old older people essentially and this is really interesting because when you think of people that are on the cutting edge of technology you don't necessarily think of senior citizens and yet now there is this new robot I believe it's called LQ. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about it in uh, in a second. Exactly what's called or Elik. I'm not even sure how it how it's pronounced. It's it's E L L I Q. So I don't know if it's pronounced LQ or Elik, but they're billing this as the robot who wants to keep grandma company. It's a new AI device optimized for empathy and they're hoping that this will solve the problem of senior isolation or people who are have seen way too many dystopic science fiction movies we're afraid that this will precipitate judgment day like we've seen in terminator 2 sooner rather than later but you know you talk to I have the Amazon smart speaker and I'll say, Alexa, what's the temperature? And it'll say, Alexa, it'll say the temperature is 51 degrees. OK, well, this this robot is designed to be a lot more of a companion and it's designed specifically to keep someone a little older company. And I don't know if you saw the movie Her, but it's very interesting with Joaquin Phoenix. He basically falls in love with his smart speaker, and it's in the near future. Maybe that's where we're heading. I mean, you could see a conversation where you wake up, let's say you're a widower, and you say, or or a widow, and your children and grandchildren don't live nearby, 
you live by yourself, maybe you don't have a lot of friends. And I, I know people that are similarly situated, and it's very difficult. And you say, LQ, good morning. And the LQ responds back, good morning, Susan. How did you sleep? I slept well. Thank you. That's good. Would you like to do some exercise? Not now. I'm going to church. Maybe later. Okay. So the Washington Post has this whole article on this in the technology section. Uh, I'm going to uh, – I'll post it on my Facebook page if you want to read it. It's facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. But uh, it talks about Susan Thorin how she didn't like blowing off her roommate. And she could have gone for that silver sneakers aerobics video, but she was late to see her pastor. Maybe Susan would hang out, hang with Elecue later after she took her dog out for a walk in Florida near the retirement community what where she lives. Not during the walk, as Ellie was fond of reminding. She can't walk. She doesn't have legs. She's just an AI device in the shape of a lamp. So that's what it looks like. But a couple of weeks ago, an Israeli company called Intuition Robotics commercially released LQ after a long beta use period. That, If you're not familiar with beta, that means that's the test period. Billed as an AI companion for the elderly. LQ offers soothing encouragement invitations to games, gentle health prodding, music thoughts, and most important, a friendly voice that learns a person's ways and comforts them in their solitude. This is a digitally accompanied future. The CEO and co-founder of this company said this is a character-based person, an entity that lives with you. People who use LQ expect her to remember conversations. They expect her to hold context, to deal with the hard times and celebrate the great times. These are the things I think we're on the frontier of. That's what the company is saying, not me. Products like Apple's Siri and Amazon's Alexa are designed as assistants, largely meant to cut through the debris of younger people's cluttered lives. LQ is not. LQ is designed as a companion meant to fill the emptiness of lives long-lived. By promising that most elusive of human commodities, empathy, LQ could either solve the growing plague of senior loneliness or fling us right into the dystopic robot buddy chasm. Maybe both. So it's going to be very friendly. It's going to sound warm and friendly, a lot more friendly than the robot in Lost in Space. What are you? I am a robot of the Class M3, programmed to provide information and support to all Jupiter personnel. And a lot friendlier probably than Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet. Welcome to Altair 4, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. If you do not speak English... I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and subtongues. I mean, who would want to be friends with that guy? I mean, I mean I'm sure he had his good qualities too, but empathy is not something I would uh, I would associate with Robbie. Uh so I'd be curious if you're over the age of 65 
and you live alone, and if at times you're feeling lonely, would you want one of these robot devices? Um, This is $250, and the monthly service for it is $30. It has a camera and a mic. And the lamp-like elder robot can see, hear, and talk, while its adjacent tablet screen allows for accompanying images. Some, this is, whatever you think about LQ, this is a real problem, what I'm about to mention. Some 14 million Americans over the age of 65 live alone. As boomers age, this is going to increase. And a study by Harvard predicted that by 2028, there will be 18 million households with people over the age of 80. More than half of them will live alone as well. Now, that's going to be a loneliness crisis. So while I'm not somebody that has embraced these smart speakers because I am worried they may take over the world, like something's got to be done about the loneliness epidemic among senior citizens. Is this what it is? 800-848-WABC. And again, this is next level. This is not Siri. This is not Alexa that can simply just do your tasks with the efficiency of a Cylon from Battlestar Galactica. This is somebody that's going to be a friend. And there are no guarantees that they won't take over the world and try to assimilate you like the Borg do. Resistance is futile. I mean, just get goosebumps thinking about that. By the way, we will have a a Star Trek discussion a little bit later, including a a robust debate on who the better Star Trek captain is. And whatever you think of the Borg, Picard's handling of the Borg repeatedly, and I'm watching the new season of Picard now, I'm enjoying it, it really might distinguish him in the annals of Starfleet military history. I mean, you go up with a a, a race of cybernetic beings like the Borg, and they're doing their thing, and to be able to have that kind of courage while they're not tolerating any resistance is quite admirable. We have an invisible range. A Borg cube on course zero mark two one five. Speed warp nine. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. So, 18 million households with people over the age of 80 by 2038. Is this the solution to avoiding depression and pandemic loneliness? Intuition, the company behind this robot, LQ, and other related companies um, are trying to address this by using technology to offer a new level of intimacy. When bad weather is imminent, a traditional digital assistant might simply note the forecast. LQ would integrate that information with knowledge of your dwindling pantry. You've been talking to it about your food stock, after all, or your pet snacks. And it might ask if you have enough to endure a lockdown. Or it might learn of a new, a favorite thing from you, a country, a food, and then recalls it months later, giving you the same bonding feeling as a friend 
who references your long ago comment. Everything that Amazon, this is a quote from uh, this company, Intuition. Everything Amazon does with Alexa is generally meant to serve a huge number of people. It's meant to serve a very large audience in a very safe way. We take a more daring action because of a much clearer audience with clearer needs. So a conversation might go like this. LQ hi. Hi, sunshine. I'm happy you're home. How was church? It was pretty good. I stopped at the grocery store on the way home. Did you buy any fruits and vegetables? I did. Great. Make sure you eat them. How about a game of trivia? Sure. So um, it's much less like the Cylon from Battlestar Galactica and more like a, a friendly robot, like the robot from Short Circuit. <laughs> Frankie, you broke the unwritten law. You rat it on your friends. When you do that, Frankie, your enemies don't respect you. You got no friends no more. You got nobody, Frankie. Pretty good, huh? That's uh, Johnny Five doing his best impersonation of a tough guy. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Westchester. Hello, Tom. Hello, Frank. Long time. No speak. Nice to hear you and chime in with you again. You'll get this reference. I want them to send a crate to my door with Gene Marsh in it. (laughs) (laughs) I do indeed. I do indeed. You know, know, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that's the way to go, or at least, you know, they'd be okay with me anyway at 64. I'll be turning 64 at the end of May. So, you know, but, and the whole techno, techno thing, I don't know what to think of it. I was talking to uh, my ex-sister-in-law about it earlier today. It's, I don't know, part of me wishes I still had a rotary, rotary telephone nailed to the kitchen wall and, you know, television goes off the air at two in the morning and that's it. But on the other hand, Gene Marsh at my front door, yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, that was one of the first uh, Twilight Zone episodes ever to air, if I'm remembering correctly. Really? Yeah. I was going to say, I thought it was like maybe 64 or 63, but that's... No, it was back in uh, in 58 or 59. That was a great episode. It's called The Lone. Great episode. Great episode. Huh. And I, I, felt, I felt, you know, jealousy. I mean, I, I felt bad because I think Jack Warden is, is the male lead in that. And he's, he's like, at first he's outraged that they left him on this, you know, he's on this prisoner island and he opens up the box and it's like you know, a mate for him. Yeah, no, no, like, no, it's a great episode, though. It caused, I mean, it really has proven prophetic, given what we're into now. Absolutely, and he kind of gets verbally abusive with her, and she starts to cry, you know, and that's the thing that, you know, he then he, then he has empathy, and he wants to, you know, um, apologize and be nice to her, and I forget what happened. Yeah, well, it's a good episode. It's worth rewatching. Again, I just looked it up. It is from season one. Eric's in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. How's it going? Um, I think it's win-win because when you think uh, uh, just the physical act of smiling can raise endorphin levels measurably. And if someone's alone and they have someone to talk to, don't even tell them the limits of the thing. About in the mid-'90s, our professor told us about, our philosophy professor told us about the, they were using the software, like supposed to be like psychiatric, and you know how uh, you know how are you today? Tell me about your mother, that type of thing. And they preferred it to the real therapist. Really? This is, this is, yeah, yeah. This is. Uh, I don't remember exactly what test was. So do you? Do you? I mean, it's, it's. 
you could say it's vague. Psychiatry is vague, but they prefer it to the to the real counselor. You know? Do you but have elderly people in your own life that you're either related to or friendly with? My mother. I'm living with her now, so oh. I. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. So she's, she's probably not lonely. But would you? Right. Let's say you had to move away for work or something. Would you get one of these for your mother? She, she, well, yeah, you know, I would try. I would try. She's very stubborn. Like she just only upgraded her cell phone recently. You yeah. Know? Well, that's the thing. Maybe you set it up for her, and he's there yeah. to, and you know, and she, Ellie's there to make conversation. Yeah. Oh, there was. Oh, you have to follow. Maybe I'll try to post it on the Facebook page. There was a historical commercial, an SL, SNL commercial. For I, I saw that actually. Uh, oh, yeah. My friend Rosie okay. showed that to me. That was very yeah. funny. Uh, that was very oh, funny. There's a, there's a, there's a creepy episode of Enterprise about the Borg. I won't spoil it. Yeah. Have a good uh, one, Frank. Thank you very much. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Let me say hello to Al in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Al. Oh, excuse me. That's Jay. Uh, Al's in Manhattan. Go ahead, Al. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah. Listen. As far as I'm concerned, first of all, I'm not sixty-five, so maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. But as creepy as it is to some degree, and that it's always on, like your phone. Because in order for Siri to know that you're asking, it always, 24-7, always on, waiting for those magic words. That's the only bad thing. But uh, with this, I think for memory care, it's going to be a very, very good uh, a, a thing that can really benefit people. Meaning that it can hear all your stories that later on people forget, you know, and then they know the older stories, but not the new. And so what it can do, it can provide comfort to make people comfortable. And if you connect it with a family relative that could check in, it could do things like, did you uh, forget to put the, you know, turn the stove off? Well, did you turn the water off? Uh, you, you know, know uh, you uh, come uh, back in and, three hours or so. Uh, yeah, you're right, Al. And, and I, I have um, an older relative and she forgets the conversations we have every single day, almost. And and she's yeah. not, you know, she's not suffering from dementia or anything. She's just at a point where she forgets these things. I have another uh, older woman that I'm friendly with. She she doesn't live alone. She's married. Every time I speak to her on the phone, she tells me the same six stories. And um, it's really that's what they know. It, right. But you can bring them back by this. They may look like you're zombies, but guess what? I have taken people where doctors have told me, uh, put this person DNR, they're not going to make it. They'll never speak again in their lives. I said, give me a week. And I do what I have to do, which is give time. And guess what? I play the music of their era. I engage them that way. It takes a while, but almost always, especially with smells and music, are the two things that people can always say. That takes me back to when I smell whatever. My grandma was cooking that, right? Well, I remember that song. You know what? It's all about what happened in your 20s or your 30s. And they're positive about this. And those are the most significant. I remember when I went on the honeymoon. I went to, to Yellowstone. I saw the Mets, uh, the World Series. And so that's what you got to come back later on. And if that uh, program, the computer, can you know, put that in with you, it becomes kind of meaningful. So you would you get know, this for an older person in your life? I would have to say uh, dementia is going to be so much uh, a problem. This is one of the ways we can help uh, uh, at least delay it a little bit. Interesting. Thank you, Al. I'm wondering, you know, and I'd love to hear from people who have a different view, uh, because so far I'm becoming convinced. You know, I I know I have an older uh, relative who lives alone. Maybe I'll get this for her for, for Christmas or her birthday or something. 
uh, because, you know, I do get worried, uh, but I can't visit every day, especially now with the baby. And I get worried not only that, um, you know, she doesn't she doesn't uh, she can't do everything that she used to be able to do. Her eyesight's not the best. Her memory's not the best. But I also get worried that she's just going to get lonely. So I'm wondering if this is a way to look, it can't it can't eliminate loneliness. I'm wondering if it can help. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. Yes, I'm I'm against the technology because I I feel human beings need natural interaction. And I think people who would use that technology are those who are afraid of their wives or husbands and don't like to argue with them. But also that technology could be misused by people, a very savvy technical person. I've seen it in the movie Franklin, Frank and the Robot with Frank Langella years ago, which was a terrific movie. He takes the robot, and he he was an ex-con, and he wants to get some jewelry from the new, uh, as they call them, yuppie couple during the time the movie was made, and wants to get into their house. And the robot has certain skills which he could use, and he does use it. So uh, I f- and I think. Uh, Robots, you can't take a robot to a museum and a robot... Oh, well, no, that's true. Look, I- I'm not suggesting that um, this can be an adequate replacement for a husband, a friend, a sibling, a child, or even somebody that visits uh, time to time. What I'm wondering, Howard, is let's say, look, look let's say you're not that mobile anymore. I mean, let's say you don't walk so well. Uh, let's say you're not able to do all the things that you used to really enjoy doing with friends or family, like go to the museum or go to the movies or go to church. And let's say you're stuck home. I'm wondering, and let's say you're not near any family. I'm wondering if this robot is maybe a way to help someone feel a little less lonely rather than have them uh, watch television all day or listen to the radio all day. By the way, I'm not against listening to the radio all day. I think even if you get one of these robots, you should be listening to the radio all day, especially this station. And as I've suggested, when you make your determinations about who to include in your will, I think it would be a nice thing if you included all your favorite radio personalities, at least the overnight ones. 800-848-WABC. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank. Yeah, well, they basically were saying what I was saying. It can't replace a person, a robot, because, first of all, you own the thing. So a, 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 a real friend has to – you have to meet them, and you have to mutually like each other. And, and if you own the thing, you know what I mean? It's not the same. But, you know, as far as the uh, the smart speakers, I, I love them. I mean, I, I got my first one not knowing if I was going to like it. I got it. It was on sale and I was like, Oh, I'm try it out. And I, I ended up getting, now I got one in every room. They, they, I think they're awesome. As long as you're not doing anything nefarious. Well, that's how it starts though, the- Chris, that's how it starts. Right. So, okay. You kill somebody in front of your smart speaker and all right, no, who's going to dispute the uh, police. Uh, they can solve the crime because of the audio from the smart speaker. But then, then you back off to crimes like uh, like embezzlement. You're planning embezzlement uh, in front of the smart speaker. Do you really want that that uh, material being given to the DOJ? Then it backs off a little bit after that. You're planning a riot at uh, at the Capitol. Okay, no, no, no. Are you planning to uh, cheat on your taxes or to uh, do something else? Look, are we really? And I'm not for doing anything that's illegal or unethical. I just I have a little bit of a problem with inviting into our homes 
these devices that are always listening to us. Now, that being said, Chris, I have two of them. I'm doing the same thing you're doing. I use it to listen to this radio station a lot. So uh, in spite of my – I'm just as hypocritical as anybody else. In spite of my warnings, I'm I'm using them all every day. The the problem with them is you forget they're there. That's the problem. Exactly. You forget it. You you don't remember that it's there until you go to use it. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, can, I can see what you're saying. You Because everybody says something that they don't want anybody yeah, else to no, know exa- about. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, you know, there was one – friend. I don't want to get into the circumstances, but you know all the friends that I've had that have had legal trouble. So one time recently, a couple of years ago, I get uh, subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury, right? And uh, I didn't want to appear before the grand jury. So I'm discussing some legal strategies about how to have this subpoena quashed, Right. It's it's a much less interesting story than it sounds like. It's a very bizarre thing. So um, I wanted to have a private conversation with my wife about some of these strategies for not not appearing before this grand jury. So the first thing I did is I unplugged all these Alexa speakers before we had that conversation. Now, I get to talk to a lot of people. My loneliness is abated by me talking to you. And I'm fortunate to have a lot of friends and family that all live close by. Not as many of them play ping pong as I would like, but I can't do that with LQ either. We're squeezing two more calls here before we get to uh, before we get to Dr. Turi. Those of you that are holding, uh, I will get to you. If you want to keep holding, we'll get to you. Adrian is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Adrian. Hi. Um, I guess I just uh, I'm not 65. Uh, my well, husband no one's though, perfect. Is. But uh, but uh, I'm just wondering. It, it sounded like that when they say intuitive, and it, and it does like uh, you know, have you have you exercised? Have you done eating your vegetables? It sounds to me like it's based on too much of some kind of a weird stereotype. Because I know many people in their 80s, 90s, and and upper 90s, and at least with the women, the females, they ain't talking about vegetables and stuff. Like if they, you could have like a you know like a, a if it would riff off the person's actual personality, but nobody wants like a lamp that's going to be, did you take your vitamins? Did you take your, I mean, who the hell wants that? You, it, it, it's too stereotypical. I don't know why they think that's the kind of companionship, at least with the older females that I know, that's not the kind of companionship they're interested in. I mean, they're, you know, a lot of them are, Having a lot of fun. Oh no, I, that's <laughs> true. I, I, I look. I don't know how how uh, wild and crazy these LQ devices get, but you know, the, uh, some of them. I think some folks would like to play games and so forth, and maybe maybe that's something. But you're right. I, I don't know if it's all going to be a, this innocent schoolmarm type conversation that they chronicle in the Washington Post. I've never seen one of these in operation. Uh, I'm curious if anyone's tried one. Please call me, Adrian. Good points. Uh, Julia's in Bay Ridge. Hello, Julia. Julia? Julia? I'm Sylvia. Ah, Sylvia. I'm sorry. Uh, Molly does not listen as well as Ella Q apparently does, so sorry about that, Sylvia. I'm 95. Oh, God bless you. This happened when I was a little girl, because my mother used to talk about it all the time. There was a young undertaker that lived in the neighborhood. And one night he finished working and he lay down and he dozed off, you know. And when he woke up, he heard this 
Good morning, 3 a.m., and he ran out of the place screaming. Come to find out he left the radio on and he forgot. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. All right. Well, hey, sometimes the radio can be a delightful companion. (laughs) Well, he left it on, you know, and when he heard this good, this voice, good morning, 3 a.m., he thought it was the dead people talking. He ran out of the place. Well, I, I can, it can be a frightening thing if you're unexpe- yes. not expecting that voice. Sure, because he just woke up, you know. So Th- that's what happened. You see, I wouldn't want that thing. How come? Not me. How come? Well, I play the piano for my own enjoyment oh. and the guitar, so I, I don't need that. I wouldn't want that. All right. Well, um, no, no, no. Wh- do you live by yourself, Sylvia? Yes, I do. Any other I strategies? Live in the uh, building in Bay Ridge. Oh, that's nice. So you 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 run into a lot of your peers at least still. Oh, sure, all oh, that's the good. time. That's good. I like Bay Ridge oh. a lot. Do you have a favorite restaurant in Bay Ridge? Well, I I do go to um oh gee, what's the name of that restaurant now? They changed it. They used to make the best ice cream. They were noted for Leonard. Oh, Leonard's. On Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I have been there. I've been there before, and that is a fine, fine spot. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sylvia, thanks for the call. Uh, next time, we're going to make you play a couple of uh, a couple of tunes on the piano for us. Oh, I wrote a song called Over 65. Oh, really? And we sing it at the center. You know, that's our theme song. Well, love it. Uh, I and think I that's great. I copyrighted. In fact, it's on the YouTube. Really? Oh. Mm-hmm. I, I will check it out. I love the YouTube, and I will check that out. Thank you, Sylvia. I think that um, that Leonard's, what is it called now? I don't think I've been there under the new name. Is it, uh might be Alboro. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to, I'm just trying to find that. But, uh, but I have been to Leonard's. Now I could go for some ice cream all of a sudden. All right. We're going to talk with Dr. Turry about other otherworldly things. They're calling this gentleman our generation's Nostradamus. And um, they might be right. And you're not going to believe his story. It's really interesting. Listen straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. trying to describe Dr. Turry. Uh, He wears so many different hats 
that to name them all would uh, take all four hours of this radio show. Here are a few. He is a fifth kind UFO contactee. He is a clinical hypnotherapist, a motivational speaker and an author. And he's most important for us, kind enough to join us on the radio this morning. Dr. Turry, thanks so much for joining us. You bet, Frank. Thank you very much for having me, my friend. Uh, it's it's our pleasure. Now, I think a lot of us have heard the term close encounter of the third kind. And a lot of us remember the great film with Richard Dreyfus, which some people even claim is uh, based on, uh, on on a true story. But um, what exactly is a fifth kind UFO contactee? That is when you have a flying saucers 35 feet above your head and when you get inside and when you communicate with those entities. So you've been inside one of these flying saucers? That's correct, yes. I mean, I have uh, uh, four very, very solid UFOs experiences. And uh, the first one started when I was seven years old. I have a very strong Gemini like you, <laughs> so I'm pretty much uh, ADD naturally, ADHD, I would say. And it was I was pretty handful as a child. So to punish me, uh, my parents used to send me in the attic. And the first time I had uh, an encounter uh, was there in the attic in the south of France in 1967. I was born in 1950. I'm 72. And what was the, just out of curiosity, the most recent of the, the fifth kind UFO contact that you had? That's when uh, the extraterrestrial, the negative group of extraterrestrials, the reptilians, um, took the fetus of my wife. And what's very interesting, after the experience, we were at the hotel and she was all shaking up and all going insane. Uh, and she called me. Uh, she was taking a shower and she says, honey, look, look. And just above the airline, she had the two inches uh, scar. And that is pretty amazing that they were able to cut her up, so to speak, take the fetus and then fix her in, 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 I don't know, in fraction of a second, literally. So that is my last experience that so I had. An, an extraterrestrial uh, actually took over your wife's body for a time? Well, Every one of us are uh, somehow under the reptilian or the draconis effect, um, which means uh, we have a reptilian's mind. That's the negative side of those entities. And then you have the other side, which is very creative. Uh, the reptilians are a, a group of extraterrestrials that can only survive without fear, negativity, confusion, chaos, war. Uh, and they live in, in time and space through a dark matter. And they are located, and actually, they are based on the planet Pluto, which is at the verge of our solar system. And Pluto is well known in astrology to be the lord of hell, the devil. While the uh, Draconis are from the constellation of Draco, and uh, they stimulate the mind of humans uh, through the forces of the sun, the, the creating beautiful technology that mm. gets your heart beating, fix your eyes, fix uh, uh, your brain. 
while the negative ETs stimulate the mind of our scientists to create nukes or, or viruses. So there's always, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. Turi. He is a fifth kind uni- uh, UFO contactee, a clinical hypnotherapist, a uh, speaker, and an author. And uh, you could check out his website at drturi.com, D R T U R I.com. There's a ton of interesting content on there uh, that will keep you busy for hours. It certainly kept me busy for a while. There's always been a lot of folks wondering if extraterrestrials make contact with the with the Earth. Are they going to be hostile or friendly? You're saying that not only do extraterrestrials routinely make that contact with people on this planet, but there are both friendly and adversarial varieties of extraterrestrials. Correct. Now, the Galactic Federation of Grand Cosmic Order forbidden any extraterrestrials to interfere with the human's affair. So the reptilians are pretty much like uh, uh, the crooks, while the draconis are low obedient. Now, the uh, uh, the draconis will uh, cut up cows, for example, uh, do all sorts of experiments to find out what's going on with the food chain, poisoning God knows what while the reptilians uh, don't care and uh, they uh, they abduct people they make people disappear they they do all sorts of uh, negative uh, uh, things it's pretty much like uh, the ultimate laws of, of black and white up and down god devil yin yang you cannot have a life without opposites and while there are a tremendous amount of names to qualify those extraterrestrials there is only two groups one and the bad ones and how often do you think that these extraterrestrials, uh, the either of those two groups, and it sounds like it's mostly the reptilists that are that are interacting, how often do extraterrestrials of any variety interact with human beings, would you say? On a constant basis constant. since you were born. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, if you take drugs or if you drink too much, now you become under the reptilious effect which means you, you become an, an open road for them to hijack your body, your mind, and your soul. They can also interfere um, in the womb of a young mother who parties too much and takes drugs and then uh, um, interfere with the uh, the genes. And sad enough, that creates uh, uh, all sorts of um, um, birth defect, including gays and lesbians. It doesn't mean this... People are less than humans. My my top students and friends, very close friends, are gays and lesbian, but they've been victimized by those entities. Uh, messing up with the genes of a young mother uh, is creating a lot of trouble uh, for the soul that has not yet uh, incarnated in this dense physical world for the rest of his life. It creates idiots that would uh, uh, beat them or do all sorts of negative things. So that is uh, 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 what they do, and including autism and also aut- aut- all sorts of birth defects are already uh, preset by those extraterrestrials before the soul incarnate. Um, we talk with Dr. Turi. He is uh, somebody that has made a number of predictions which have proven uh, shockingly accurate. And you are actually from the same part of France that uh, Nostradamus was, right? 
That's correct. I was born in Provence uh, under the same stars as Nostradamus. Um, even though that I have nothing to do with the prophet, I was born under the same stars and, and I spent about 50 years of my life rekindling his 16th century divine astrology methodology. And my predictions brought the FBI in my house twice mm. already. So I got to be very careful when I make predictions of terrorists because they come here and they think I am a, a sleeping cell wondering how the hell I would pick up the exact dates of a terrorist attack in Paris or New York. So i got to be cautious. Nostradamus has been one of those figures who's been very controversial uh, for centuries. How accurate do you think most of Nostradamus' predictions turned out to be? First of all, you have to realize that during the 500 years ago, Nostradamus had to use a very, very blurry type of information to keep his head in his shoulder because the French Inquisition didn't like anyone who was practicing astrology or metaphysics. There is a lot of people that are trying to translate Nostradamus verses uh, but first of all, um, you have to speak our local dialect, which is called the Provençal. You have to do divine astrology, which has nothing to do with modern astrology. You have to pay attention, particularly in the location of the natal and hidden dragon. Uh, and uh, there is also a curse, a curse that the prophet wrote himself for those or so-called astrologers or psychic who would hurt his integrity and his good names. That's why you have to be cautious when you delegate with Nostradamus work. Um, talking with Dr. Turi, check out his website, drturi.com. About 10 years ago, because we alluded to your incredible track record of accurate predictions and not just vague things, but uh, predicting Hurricane Katrina on the very day that it took place, predicting terrorist attacks on the very day that they took place. About 10 years ago, uh, one of my favorite personalities, William Shatner, featured you in one of his episodes of his show, William Shatner's Weird or What? And basically, the whole premise of the show is how do you keep making these accurate predictions? One of the people that Shatner interviewed in that show about why you're so accurate He claimed that you somehow have gained access to an alien technology that allows you to see events in the future. He called this the looking glass. Is there any truth at all to that? Uh, well, again, you t- <laughs> no, 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 that I know. Um, all I know is that I am delegating with an extraterrestrials that entered my life uh, during the solar eclipse of uh, June 2012. Uh, and uh, from that day, I uh, channel this entity that gives me uh, incredible information. But I was already uh, kind of a psychic before then because I gave uh, all the information in great detail to what happened in 9-11, a year and a half before it happened. And it's one of my top predictions. And you can Google it, Dr. Turi 9-11, and you see exactly that was printed uh, in, in my books. Uh, you have to remember, my work is uh, well documented, is dated, and it's published. It's not just on um, uh, William Shatner show. Uh, by the way, I, I took the permission to run your chart. Um, you were born uh, under the constellation of Gemini, uh, and there is no accident for you to be on the air. You are a messenger of the gods. 
uh, communicator. I mean, I'm sure you heard of Art Bell and uh, George Norrie. Both of them, like you, uh, are on the radio and they work at night. So there is no accident you, you know, in it's, my line it, of Thank work. you. Yeah, it's very funny that you said that because uh, I knew Art Bell a little bit and he and got to interview him a little bit uh, and, and I was a big fan of his. But my brother-in-law, who studies astrology very closely, he made right recently, just this past weekend, made reference to the similarities between my chart and Art Bell and uh, and George Nori. Um, just so folks understand your prediction process, though, do the predictions, especially pre twenty twelve, how do they generally come to you? Is it a vision, or is it something that you study and analyze and then come up with something, or is it a little bit of both? A little bit of both, I would say. Um, my work is very rational and very practical. I design a software with Alwan Software in Los Angeles that allows me to read the stars like the great prophet used to do 500 years ago. Uh, I concentrate on the dragon. And uh, for that matter, uh, when you're ready, I, I want to put the green where the mouth is for your audience. Uh, I want to give you some dates and some predictions uh, in that, the near that was my next question. I'll, I'll leave it to you. Uh, tell us what we can expect in the near future. Well, first of all, you want to put your hand on a piece of paper and a pen um, and write down April 24th. Uh, on that day, um, expect uh, news involving uh, um, cyber attack, maybe. Um, definitely cosmic news. That could be anything from... Uh, the solar ray to, uh, uh it, it, it's outside that you see that energy. Of course, a sudden release of energy, meaning also earthquakes, um, worse that could happen, of course, is an airplane crash, but be ready for big, big surprises and anything to do with technology. Now, made of, made of first, uh, that's pretty close, uh, and particularly Meta 15. Meta 15 is going to be a serious dance of evil, uh, involving Russia. Uh, life, death, crazy people killing people, cops being shot, uh, or the police killing innocent people goes both way. Um, again, um, it's, it's very important to realize that I am, I am using both, like you mentioned earlier, intuition and my software. May the first dramatic news related to secret, to Russia, to money. That's what it is. And I know being born in May, uh, your mental process is concerned with security and good food. I can see <laughs> that already in your charts. Um, but May the 15 is uh, definitely related to Russia and it's going to be a dance of evil. It's going to be ugly. So, I wish I would have better news for you, but uh, that is the three dates I'm giving you. April 24th, May 1st, and May 15th. So if April, April 24th, news possibly involving a cyber attack or definitely some, something cosmic news, anything from a solar ray or airplane crash, May 1st yeah, news. is uh, dramatic news related to Russia. May 15th is a serious dance of evil also involving Russia. Life, death, crazy people, cops being shot, or police possibly killing innocent people. Those are the three dates. Yeah, this is where you're going to have crazy people getting again a machine gun and start to kill people. Because what just happened uh, last, the same type of window, I call them SOS to the world, deadly window, the same type of window took place last weekend. And that's why we had uh, over, well, I think, uh, 10 shooting all over the United States. 
So uh, I want all my people on my YouTube channel. I want all my my students, my clients uh, through my newsletters and my video on YouTube. And it happened again. So just be cautious. We're going to have the same type of negative, deadly energy coming up on those dates. Well, I, you know, I always ask people when they come on the show and uh, they talk about anything regarding the paranormal or uh, astrology or UFOs. I always ask them to address the skeptics in our audience. But I think the best proof that the skeptics in our audience could hope for is just to see what happens on all those three dates. And if you're right, then uh, I guess we know uh, there's something to these predictions. Oh, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I am right. You will find out. And I'm not saying this on an, ego, an egocentric point of view, but I have been directly sending an email to the FBI, to the police. And, and by the way, I'd like to say hello to my good friend, Paul Agrity, and his son is a police captain in your, in your city, in New York, and also my good student friend, Cheryl. I'd like to say hello to them. They are listening. Wonderful. Great. Hello to uh, uh, Ca- the Captain Haggerty and to... Uh, and to Cheryl, and uh, hopefully you'll come back and we'll we'll check in with you around May 1st or May 15th. Let me end with this, uh, and, uh, and again, I do hope you'll come back often, but uh, you have uh, suffered from disease before, including serious illness like cancer, and you're able to heal yourself. Can you give anyone in our audience who's dealing with a disease or a serious ailment any tips on how they can go about healing themselves? Well, any disease is coming from a blockage that is coming from your subconscious or your superconscious. That's where God resides. And after 12 years of marriage, uh, my wife didn't want to get a baby being taken away from her. So she divorced me. And during those days, I was very depressed, very negative, uh, drinking and all that. And that opened up to cancer. I was able to beat it by using the same uh, methodology, by being uh, more positive and by uh, uh, using my universal blood transfusion. Both of my oncologists told me you need to go and uh, 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 through uh, chemotherapy. Of course, I refused. I wanted to stay natural. Uh, and uh, that's where I created, intuitively, I created uh, the universal blood transfusion and I make a habit to do that every single day. Uh, and um, that's what saved my life. But one thing I have to mention to you, the father of medicine said um, that you cannot call yourself a doctor or a physician if you did if you did not study astrology. I mean, you're talking about the the father of modern medicine. And sad enough, our young physician have been indoctrinated either by science or religion, whichever way or both, and uh, they tend to think that uh, divine astrology, when practiced properly mm. by professional, is a sort of science when it is actually the mother of all science. Uh, Doctor Turi, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the conversation and i hope you'll come back often you bet thank you for having me my friend thank you appreciate it very much if you want to check out dr turi's website go to dr t-u-r-i.com dr turi.com fascinating conversation if you want to comment 800-848-wabc straight ahead talk radio 77 wabc the other side of midnight with frank morano 77 wabc
has gone The Thrill is Gone by the great William Shatner. 800-848-WABC. Hey, we'll do the mail um, next hour because uh, I don't want to rush through the mail. few of you have been writing. If you want to email me with your thoughts on anything, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Let me squeeze in at least a few quick calls here. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Oh, hi, Frank. Yeah, I want to say that I never heard anything like this before. This guy is is the real deal. I think he because he's he's got some strange power because you know I feel like I listened to him for a long time. It could have put me in a state of very very deep um, uh, meditation. He's he had a certain calmness that transcended the fact that he was on the radio. You know, certain people when they're on the radio, there's a consciousness. He was talking like he would be talking anywhere. He has a certain power to him, and and I, I just want to ask you. When he's talking about May 15th being a, a day of blood, and, and, that, and that was leaping off of May 1st, which we don't know. You just said something dramatic about Russia. Could May 15th possibly be uh, the day of, of, of a nuclear uh, demonstra- uh, nuclear attack by Russia? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. I, I certainly don't pretend to have any of these uh, abilities to predict anything. But uh, I think uh, I think that's uh, I, I just don't know. Because if, if because he said very because Dad, he was like vague because it wasn't I'm sure he didn't know it specifically was going to happen but I mean maybe he was deliberately holding back so as not to terrify the world. Well, I don't know. I mean, what I do know is that if you look at his track record of predictions, it is pretty amazing. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be watching those dates on my calendar pretty closely, Larry. Thanks for the call. And sure. I agree with you on his voice because, I mean, look, there's a reason he's a hypnotherapist. He hypnotizes a lot of people when the, generally hypnotists have a certain way of speaking that is very melodious. He certainly did. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. John? Hey, what's up, Frank? Hey, got about 30 seconds, John. You want to hold or do you want to be quick? Uh, I'll hold. All right, I'll put you on hold. Hang on. All right, coming up, uh, Timothy Stanley is going to be here. We'll talk, uh, speaking of William Shatner, we'll discuss some aspects of the Star Trek universe in just a bit. And uh, we'll take your calls, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Until next hour, be sure to keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to go through your mail in just a minute if you want to email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. You know, whenever we talk about space, you know what is interesting? And we didn't get to talk too much about Dr. Turi's theories about space, but I will uh, have him back. But what's interesting is that the the entity that he referenced was something called the Galactic Federation. And I thought that was really interesting because on Star Trek, the – entity that runs things in the 23rd century was also called the Federation. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I came across uh, an interesting, uh, interesting article. I'm trying to see where I saw the article. But they had a poll in which fans voted on who the best captain in the Star Trek universe were, was. And look, there's a lot of strong candidates, and I have just set up a poll that you can vote on in our Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And I'll be honest There are a lot of great captains in the Star Trek universe. And obviously, the ones that have been stars of their own show are maybe people that we probably get to know a little bit better than others. We get to understand their command decisions. And the other thing to keep in mind, these are all fictional characters. So obviously, the writers, the producers write them out to look in the best possible light. They want them to look heroic. I get it. That being said, I think it's difficult to compare captains from different eras, just like it's different. It's difficult to it's it's difficult to compare presidents from different eras. Like, can you really compare George Washington to Donald Trump? I don't think you can, because when Washington became president, he had no playbook. You know, there was no, um, there was no, what do you even call the president? No one even knew. No one knew. Um, Can you veto a bill that Congress passes because you disagree with it? Or do you only have to do that when it's something that you think is unconstitutional? And the, uh, who do you get to help with the job of being president? Well, can I have some advisors? Yeah, I guess so. Well, what should I call them? I don't know. Well, maybe I'll call it a cabinet. Now, Washington had no playbook before anybody that came that before he had no playbook. So, when Trump or Biden became president, he had a playbook for that he got to see what everybody did for 200 and something years. So, I think it's sort of the same thing when it comes to ranking Star Trek captains. And and there's one that stands out in my view. Maybe there's two that stand out. 
One is Captain Pike and Captain Otherwise, we only see Pike in a few episodes of the original series, and I know then they bring him back in Discovery and in some of the movies, but he was the first person to ever be the captain of the Enterprise, on not chronologically, but in the order that we got to see the episodes. Although I, I realize the cage didn't air until later, but it was the first person filmed as the captain of the Enterprise. So the writers had no playbook for what we, the fans, were going to like. And even more so with Kirk. Kirk, just as Nimoy did with uh, Spock, Kirk really was brought to life by William Shatner's incredible portrayal of him. And everything Shatner did and everything the writers did in that series, it set a precedent for everybody that came after. I mean, when you look at Shatner and Kirk, it's not just great acting, but it's great leadership. Captain DeCrew, those of you who have served for long on this vessel have encountered alien life forms. You know the greatest danger facing us is ourselves and a rational fear of the unknown. But there's no such thing as the unknown. Only things temporarily hidden, temporarily not understood. In most cases, we have found that intelligence capable of a civilization is capable of understanding peaceful gestures. Surely a life form advanced enough for space travel is advanced enough to eventually understand our motives. All decks, stand by. So by the time the next generation came out, you got to see, um, you know, there had already been three years of the TV series and there was um, four movies at that point. So I really think it's tough to compare captains in different eras, not only the eras in which the show aired, but the eras in which the show took place. For instance, I mean, is it really to compare someone? uh, Is it fair to compare someone who was captain of a ship during the 23rd century to someone who was captain of it in the 24th when society has changed so much? Maybe a lot of the things that uh, that that Sh- uh, Kirk did, and I'm thinking a lot of his interactions with women, maybe that was considered acceptable on 1960s television and in the 23rd century, and that wouldn't have been acceptable in the 24th century in 1980s or 1990s television. So we've set up this poll in the Facebook group, and you could vote on who you think the best captain is, although I, I was typing quickly because I was trying to get it on. I was trying to type while I was talking and I I wrote, I made a typo on Picard. So I have to figure out how to edit this poll option. But you you know what I mean? You know what I mean? When it says uh, pick, it says P-I-C-A-F-R-D. It's not supposed to have that F in Picard. You know what I mean? Captain Picard also. A terrific captain. But the question of justice has concerned me greatly of late. And I say to any creature who may be listening, there can be no justice so long as laws are absolute. Even life itself is an exercise in exceptions. Picard obviously was a lot more diplomatic, maybe a little more statesmanlike. Kirk was more of a, a, a shoot now, ask questions later kind of a guy. He was tough. He was aggressive. And part of that could be youth. You know, Kirk was only 33 or 34 
at the time that he was captaining the Enterprise, Picard was a good deal older. And they say with age does come some wisdom. And that's why a lot of people like Cisco. Cisco was the captain on Deep Space Nine. First couple seasons of Deep Space Nine, it's a little weird because they're stuck out there in the middle of nowhere at this space station. But then once they got the Defiant and they could run, run, run around different places, then it was a little more interesting. But Cisco, a lot of people feel, was the balance between Picard and Kirk. There was a mixture of diplomat and action hero. Uh, you be the judge. I'm about to take the following action in exactly one hour. I will detonate two quantum torpedoes that will scatter trilithium resin into the atmosphere of Solosis III. I thereby will make the planet uninhabitable to all human life for the next 50 years. I suggest evacuation plans begin immediately. What are you waiting for, people? Carry out your orders. What a voice that uh, Avery Brooks has. So tell me, you're welcome to vote in the poll. Um, So far, Kirk is winning, and that is the captain that won in this other fan poll as well. But uh, if you want to call in and tell me who you think the best captain is and why, you can do that as well. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. You can comment on uh, anything else uh, that you want to comment on as well john is in freehold hello john hey frank um so uh i think uh you really can't compare um captains because it was they were they were all made at different times right right that's what i was was, sort of saying i mean you're right yeah even though it's on the star trek universe um you know the politics and like the stuff that was going on and like each decade, it's a, it's reflected in the show, so I don't think it's really fair to compare those. But I, I get what you're saying, and you're right, and I made a similar point. That being said, a lot of times the fans like comparing, so I'm not going to stand in the way of, of their good time. Yeah, and then um, as for the uh, the guy that um, you were talking to before, I, I have a huge difficulty believing in, uh, you know, medians and stuff his predictions are so vague you know it's um and you, you look back at his tra- his um history but everything is so vague you'll always find something you know uh, to line up you know what he said to to an event well i mean these are pretty specific dates though aren't they but I mean, was somebody's going to get shot on like May fourteenth? No, I mean, I, I I wouldn't consider that being an accurate prediction. But if something like the George Floyd incident happens on May fifteenth, then I think maybe that is an accurate prediction. But we'll see. We'll see where. Well, why don't we circle back around May fifteenth and we'll see where we are. Take care, Frank. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Carl is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Carl. Hi, Frank. Uh, I've been listening to your show a long time, and I I appreciate you taking my call. Uh, I have just a few questions, and and, or maybe um, they belong on the other side of Midnight. Number one is Dr. Tory mentioned the Dracos or the Reptilics. And uh, from the knowledge that I have, 
Hitler was was actually in contact with the reptilics during before and after during World War Two. And he, he um, obtained a lot of technology from the from the from the reptilics. They also the Hitler sent 300 people to Antarctica, where in the caverns on the Antarctica they built a city where the the reptilics brought the the German uh, um, Nazis to Antarctica, where the reptilics, from my knowledge still have a base in Antarctica, okay? Uh, so uh, he never brought that up. He mentioned that they, they live on the planet Pluto, uh, or they have a base on the planet Pluto. Uh, they are spo- supposedly the evil aliens, and they also have the ability to shapeshift from a reptile to a human and back to a reptile again. Um, another thing is that there are contactees on the on the earth that have contact with these alien uh, uh, beings that are coming to the earth. They is here, and they also um, some of them, like he said, I agreed. Some of them are good, and some of them are bad. Um, I I feel that the that the um, the one of the main questions I would hope that you would ex- extend this question out on other side of midnight. Their, their technology is millions of years in advance of anything that we have. That if any nation decides to launch nuclear weapons, that they could render the weapons useless. Will the aliens intervene if nuclear weapons are? They try to launch nuclear weapons. They have come here since World War II, and they have investigated all of our, all the nuclear weapons, uh, the silos that are on the planet. They have the ability to uh, render them useless. I know that the uh, many of the friendly aliens they have the they have a policy of non-interference. But will they will they? Yeah, it's a fair question, uh, Carl. Uh, It's a fair question. The next time he or someone else uh, who has some knowledge on this subject comes on, I will ask it. Carl, thank you for the call. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Hey, in discussing the the captains of Star Trek, how can I forget? The first female captain, right? Uh, Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. Change course immediately. I don't think you realize that you are not in control here anymore. I can kill you and your crew in an instant. Go ahead. Without us, you won't be able to prevent this ship from being torn apart by the pulsars. And even with my crew working together, I'd say the odds of us getting through this are what? One in ten? One in twenty, at best, Captain. I'm willing to take that chance. Are you? Uh, 800-848-9222. The thing that you have to get uh, give Captain Janeway credit for is they were lost, basically, lost in space. And she, unlike other another starship that they encountered out there in the Delta Quadrant, she kept running a pretty tight ship. She kept adhering to Starfleet protocols and doing all that stuff. So I think you got to give her credit with that. That's something that Kirk or Picard or Cisco never had to deal with. 800-848-WABC. Now, 
We talked about who was first in terms of the what TV audiences saw, but what about the fellow that was first chronologically? Even before Starfleet, even before there was a prime directive, you had Captain Jonathan Archer on the uh, television program Enterprise, who was absolutely uh, a trendsetter in many different respects. It's time you learned to weigh the possible repercussions of your actions. You've always been impulsive. Maybe this will teach you a lesson. I understand. Do you? I'm not so sure you do. You knew you had no business interfering with those people. But you just couldn't let it alone. You thought you were doing the right thing. I might agree if this was Florida or Singapore. But it's not, is it? We're in deep space, and a person is dead. A person who'd still be alive if we hadn't made first contact. I guess I haven't been very successful at getting through to you. If I had, you would have fought a lot harder before doing what you did. I tell you, what an actor Scott Bakula is. Not only is he great on that show, he's been great in a lot of other films. And he was great on Quantum Leap, uh, but he's really great as uh, Captain Archer there. You know, there's one documentary that uh, that I saw actually on this was actually one of the only instances that I ever met Shatner in person I got into, I've gotten to speak with Shatner on the phone a few different times but the only time I ever met him briefly was on the uh, USS Intrepid maybe about 10 or 11 years ago and he did a screening of this this documentary that he'd made for the cable channel epics and I believe the documentary was called The Captains. And it's really well done. And it's this documentary of Shatner interviewing all of the actors that I just played you. Patrick Stewart, uh, Kate Mulgrew, Avery Brooks, and Scott Bakula. And talking to all of them about their experiences on Star Trek and playing the captain. And it's really well done, and he's a great interviewer. I've always said that. That's why I really enjoyed that biography channel show that he did, William Shatner's Raw Nerve. But if you want to weigh in on who your favorite Star Trek captain is, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC, or you can vote in our poll in the Facebook group. Just search on Facebook, uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. And um, right now we're trying to figure out how to fix the spelling of Picard. So far, we've not been able to do so. We are working on that. It's driving me crazy. We are working on figuring that out. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in telephonically, though. John is in White Plains. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How you doing, big fan? Thanks. Um, I, got a, I got a question about the Dr. Tory. Uh, can I guess whatever he's smoking? Because that guy's crazy. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, crazy's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But uh, hey, uh, we'll 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 ask for his recommendations. We'll send them over to you. All right, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, John. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Oh, hi there, Frank. I love the interview with Doctor Tory. Um, my favorite uh, Star Trek captains are. 
Patrick Stewart and Kate Mulgrew. All right. All right. Yeah. I thought I think Patrick Stewart is a fantastic actor. I mean, he he always has been. Um and a Kate I thought Kate Mulgrew was great. Really. Yeah, no, I did too. I and I've interviewed her before and I'm going to try and get her back because she's one of the new voices on this uh, animated series. Billy is in Queens. Hello Billy. Hey Frank. Every prediction I ever made on this radio station over the years has come true. And I have a serious prediction. This summer, the crime is going to get so bad, they're going to call the National Guard to patrol the streets of New York City. You heard it here first. Well, I, I hope you're wrong, Billy. But, yeah, we did hear it here, here first. We will, uh, we, will be sure to, uh, we, can, we will be sure to go back and check this prediction out. Uh, evidently, Matt Blaze, I cannot – we can't edit this poll after people started voting. You cannot. Oh, no. That is awful. This is going to drive me crazy. <laughs> I'm not going to delete it and uh, because people have indeed started voting. Oh, That is according to the Help Center on Facebook. To edit a poll you created before people have started voting. Oh. Click uh, the three dots and then edit post. That is horrible. So don't delete it. No. Oh, man, that's really demoralizing. All right. Well, if you want to vote in the poll, uh, go to Facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano. Uh, Dr. Timothy Stanley joins me next. We're going to talk about the uh, election this weekend in France. We'll talk about American politics, British politics, Ukraine, NATO, you name it. we got a whole bunch of stuff coming your way. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is Bon Jovi singing Runaway. If you ever want to know what songs we're playing on this show, just join the Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. And uh, bring a friend, too, if you know anyone that's interested in the show. We're trying to get more people to contribute in a meaningful way in the Facebook group. So it's not all um, just um, Ellen's summaries, great as they are. Uh, John Kwok complaining about Ukraine and uh, Nancy posting unrelated uh, items that we have not brought up on this show. And uh, we encourage everybody to participate and post about whatever they want to hear. So I mentioned I was chronicling the adventures of my son's uh, forthcoming baptism. Uh, He's going to be baptized on May 1st, and we were going to have him baptized at a church in Manhattan. And it didn't work out because of all the streets that are closed because of the five-borough bike tour. But when I had booked the restaurant that we're having a, a dinner at, it's very small. It's just really a couple of close friends and uh, and family. 
and really just just mostly his family. But we we had um, arranged to have it around I think one thirty or so. So give people time to get from Manhattan to Staten Island makes sense, right? And then because it's a little late in the day, it's one thirty to four thirty. You can't really have brunch food, even though brunch is my favorite meal. That's always my preference. So you have dinner food. So then I um, – when we had to relocate it to a church on Staten Island and it was an earlier time, all of a sudden we looked at maybe moving it up to noon. Now, at noon, it's a different ball game. You can have brunch food at noon. Now, I spoke to the – folks at this restaurant that were having it. And uh, I said, well, you know, can we can we do this? Can we do it at noon? Yes. Well, if we want, can we do brunch instead of dinner? Yes. Well, is it less expensive to do brunch instead of dinner? Yes. How much less expensive? $10. $10. So essentially, and, you know, the only thing menu-wise that I insisted upon was an open bar. And my wife had all sorts of food preferences. I don't care about that. As long as there's an open bar, I think I think it's good. So it's ten dollars cheaper per person, not including, you know, just for adults. Let's say there's seventy adults or so. Maybe there's more, maybe there's eighty. Um ten dollars a plate, I mean that's pretty significant. That's almost eight hundred, nine hundred dollars. Not quite nine hundred, but it's eight hundred dollars. So I, I think we have to tell them for sure. I think tomorrow. I think that's probably what we're going to do. Do you think anybody is going to mind that if we don't have dinner food and it's only brunch food? And what's brunch food? I mean, there's eggs, there's there's bacon. Now I know there are other add-ons that you can add, like a omelet station and so forth. I'm not sure. I, I mean, obviously, you know. You add too many of those add-ons on, and all of a sudden it eviscerates any savings from converting to dinner to brunch. But I don't think people are going to care if it's a brunch. Me, I'm telling you, honestly, I'm not saying this because I'm looking to save some money, and although I am. it's I actually prefer brunch foods to to dinner food, right? I mean, isn't that better than – I'll take an omelet over chicken scarpaello any day of the week. What do you think? Email me if you have thoughts. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. Uh, we're trying to get a hold of uh, Timothy Stanley. We're going to chat with him in a few minutes. But uh, in the meantime, a lot of you have been feverishly writing in, and we are going to go through some of... Subject, traffic. Hi, Frank. This is Chris from Mount Vernon. Just wanted to tell you, just want to let you know, I'm in traffic on the on the the 87. Help, L-O-L. Uh, yeah, again, apparently I'm supposed to help people when they're in a traffic jam. Chris, there's nothing I can do for you. You know what my solution is if you're stuck in a traffic jam? 
Turn the radio up louder. I wish there was more than I can do. We'll not only dispatch Molly this time around, we'll dispatch Alex Barnard as well. He's got nothing else to do. Uh, Christine writes, hi, Frank. I wonder if you saw 60 Minutes. This was a week ago. 60 Minutes tonight. Zelensky was, as always, impressive and brave. And Scott Pelley was, as expected, blah. He asked the same questions over and over in different ways. Didn't follow up on Zelensky's answers. Didn't do any kind of investigation into what happened in Buka. That's what's happened to journalism these days. Thank goodness for your show. Also, thanks for bringing on Warner Wolf last week. I adore baseball for reasons I don't understand, since no one around me even likes it. Congenital? I fell in love with it via the radio when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. Lynn Samuels would be preempted by the Yankees. Sorry, I just left it on and fell in love. By the way, you're so lucky to have Buck as a manager. She's right. I do agree. I'm a big Buck Showalter fan. And honestly, that her story of discovering radio, I mean, um, baseball through radio, that's kind of how I became so enamored of talk radio. I would go to bed listening to baseball and then wake up listening to great talk radio programming. So we have sort of a reverse story. We're kind of cousins in that respect. Uh, This person did not sign his email. It just reads, shill. It says, I lost all respect for you. I lost all respect for your gambling drunk ass after Curtis segment on you. You truly are a shill for Atlantic City. Well, unnamed emailer, I do not know what I will do without your... Your love and respect. Uh, This is from Al. Hey, Frank, what's your favorite Italian dish to order or make at home? Mine is polo or vitello parmesan myself. That's Al. Uh, That's a food fanatic. So I like almost any kind of seafood. I like uh, lobster fra diavolo. That might be my favorite. Or galamad fra diavolo. Any kind of grilled galamad, uh, especially with that spicy fra diavolo sauce, that's my favorite. Uh, this person, unnamed, writes of the story we did yesterday of the person who sued because his employer revealed his birthday. Company is fortunate to get rid of an unstable employee. And uh, this person writes, this is Catherine, happy Easter season. And just write simply, uh, hope you and the Morano family enjoyed a very happy Easter Sunday. Uh, we did, as I said yesterday. May the Easter season bring blessings and continued joy. We were remembering your Aunt Camille on Easter and wondering if she made more of her famous egg salad. Not yet. Hopefully uh, she got a lot of hard-boiled eggs, and I'll uh, get to enjoy some this week. This is from Miss M. You are many things. ADHD is not one of them. Just saying. Well, you know, it's funny. I had an ex-girlfriend, the M- M- Mallory, who believed that I had autism spectrum disorder. I never agreed with that. I don't think I do have autism spectrum disorder. And I brought this up with my wife, even while we were dating. And she said, no, you don't have autism spectrum disorder. You have ADHD. And she went through the list of characteristics of people with adult ADHD. And I got to tell you, I'm close. I'm close. So I think he might be onto something. I've always thought that it would be funny to have Mallory and Rachel engage in a prepared debate on whether I suffer from ADHD or autism spectrum disorder or nothing at all. And finally, Pete writes, hi, Frank. Thank you for having Dr. Turi on your show. I have followed him and consulted with him since 1998. He's an incredible talent. Best wishes, Pete. Thanks for listening, Pete. All right. Um, 
Straight ahead, we are going to talk with the one and only Tim Stanley, one of my favorite journalists, historians, and uh, commentators on all things related to geopolitics and uh, all things related to Great Britain. Get his take on a wide variety of subjects straight ahead. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. It's always a real treat to talk with Timothy Stanley. He's a historian, a broadcaster, a columnist, an author of several books, including most recently, Whatever Happened to Tradition. He uh, might be based in Great Britain, but he certainly seems to know American politics as well as British politics, as well as anybody else. Timothy, it has been way too long since we spoke. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning. It's a pleasure. So uh, let me begin with the scandal that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is uh, dealing with right now, so-called lockdown gate. As I understand it, and please fill in any blanks I might be missing, as I understand it, uh, he's in trouble now because it's been revealed that he was throwing parties at a time when there were restrictions and lockdowns all over the UK and people weren't able to go to restaurants or throw parties. Is that about the, 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 the gist of it? Absolutely. Of course, it's worse than that. They weren't allowed to visit elderly relatives and care homes. But he, whether or not he threw the parties, there's a lot of dispute. He would say that parties were going on. He didn't realize they were a party. He just happened to be in the room when they were happening. And his chancellor, who's also been fined and also got in trouble, says that he didn't realize that the party he was attending was even going to happen. He just happened to be in the same room when it started. So there have been all these spontaneous parties going on that politicians accidentally end up attending. But (laughs) it's a very surreal situation because the, the rules were that you were allowed to be a large number of people sitting in a room doing work. What you were not allowed to do was to have a party. So the moment that someone turned to someone else and said, happy birthday, for some reason under British law during lockdown, apparently that became a party. So when Boris Johnson was offered a piece of birthday cake because it was his birthday, suddenly there was a party going on in number 10. Now, I think that's ridiculous. Most voters found it ridiculous. And I think many would be minded to let Boris Johnson off for having done it. The problem is he wrote the mad rules that he's now accused of breaking. And that's why many people are so angry with him. Now, I'm not I'm not against castigating hypocritical politicians, including American politicians in this country that have done the same thing, especially in California. There are many. But aren't we over this whole thing now that society is back open? Can't we just enjoy not having to run around town with masks and proof of vaccine everywhere? Can't we let sleeping dogs lie and move on to the next scandal? What happened to the good old days of British politicians sleeping with their subordinates. I I quite agree. I I want MPs to be free to go back to committing adultery and theft and the good old fashioned crimes that, 
were far, were far, were made much more sense. Now, I, I, look, there are two groups of people who want to bring him down. There are people who are angry about the lockdown rules being imposed in the first place. They want to see him suffer for what they feel he did to the country. And then there's those who just have hated Boris Johnson forever. And they hate him because he is a controversial personality. He is there, there are similarities with Donald Trump in terms of his political style. But they also dislike him because of Brexit, because of the various things that he's successfully got done. And they're just desperate for any, any anything that could bring him down. Could this uh, provide an opening for any of the right of center critics of Boris Johnson? The one that I think American audiences know best is Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party and then the Brexit Party. He's been critical of Boris's overreach. Will this scandal provide an opening for him? I don't know. I think those people tend to be a bit more reluctant to attack Boris on this. They will join the chorus of calling him a hypocrite. But because, like me, they hated the rules so much, I think there's a part of them that can't quite get angry about him breaking the rules. The problem is that he wrote them and that he was hypocritical in not upholding them personally. I get that. But I think that that wing of conservatism would rather attack him on something like immigration, the cost of living, inflation, tax. We're we're heading towards uh, the highest burden of tax in this country since the Second World War. Uh, Uh, That's a bigger deal. If you if you were to spend a few months here in New York, uh, Tim, you would be saying there's no place like home. Believe me. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, Talking with Tim Stanley, uh, you can uh, check out his uh, latest book, Whatever Happened to Tradition, which I want to ask you about in a second. You can also read his column regularly in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, Tim, the whole world, not just Europe, is looking at France on Sunday for this runoff election between Emmanuel Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen. It's a rematch of the runoff that happened five years ago. She also made it to the runoff five years before that. This is her third try for the presidency. Uh, I was one of those people that thought she didn't have much of a chance of winning the runoff this time around, but some polls are showing that she's within striking distance. Why do you think Le Pen is resonating more this year than she did five years ago or ten years ago? One interesting factor is that uh, a more right-wing candidate called Zamor may actually have helped to detoxify her uh, because her brand has always been the far right. But during the the first round, there was another candidate who was regarded as being even more far right. And that made her seem a little bit less far right. She's also worked uh, on detoxifying herself. Um, She's she's been rebranded as a cat owner. Uh, She's qualified because you have to have a qualification to raise a certain kind of cat in France. And she's passed that qualification. And so there's there's been a big effort to make her look less extreme uh, than many people perceive her to be. Uh, But also Macron has managed to alienate both sides of the spectrum. He is regarded by the right wing as insufficiently tough on immigration uh, and as just generally weak. Uh, He's and as a Big, uh, and they dislike many of his regulations. But he is also regarded by the left as being too right wing because he's economically neoliberal. Uh, so Le Pen manages, therefore, to scoop up all the anti-Macron votes. But having said that, I, I think that the pattern for French elections tends to be far right versus the centre and everyone rallies around the centre. There's still a big cultural antipathy in France towards uh, nationalism. And I suspect Macron will pull through. Mm. Uh, With that prediction in mind, you know, in in some respects, Macron's election five years ago 
was just as much of a uh, embrace of French populism. They elected somebody that's never held office that rejected mm. both of the major parties in France as as Marine Le Pen's rise was. I'm curious, and you've studied populist movements all over the world. Is the trend in France towards populism, uh, as exemplified by Macron and uh, Le Pen, neither of whom is rep- representing one of the major parties that have won most of the uh, French elections throughout the last 70 years, is that trend towards populism the same thing that led to Brexit in England, the five-star movement in Italy, Trump in the United States, and Syriza in Greece? Or is there something uniquely French going on? There is something uniquely French, but equally, I would say France uh, is 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 a bellwether on this. Uh, what I find what's intriguing is that many people, particularly in Britain, regard France as being sophisticated and above populism. And yet the, the pace of the populist change in France has arguably been greater than it is in Britain and America. In America, you still have the two party system. Uh, the current president is is the embodiment of the old liberal order, very, very old liberal order. In Britain, the two main parties that have always been in power are still in power. In France, the two traditional parties of centre-left and centre-right have collapsed in this election, and they've been replaced by two outsiders. And you're right, Macron has to be understood as a populist as well. He's a populist at the centre, uh, but he ran as an anti-establishment candidate. So in some ways, France, far from being above populism, is actually moving even further, even faster than everyone else. If France were to go the extra step and, in, and in, uh, elect a nationalist, it would have huge repercussions for the country, because it's unclear how she could govern um, she wouldn't win a parliamentary majority, so she'd probably have to mm. govern through a series of referenda. But it would be huge for Europe as well, because although she has dropped much of her Eurosceptic platform, it, it would be a, a clear moral vote against the EU and against the liberal tide and the establishment in Europe. And it would challenge Europe's perception of itself. Uh, Tongue with uh, Timothy Stanley, historian, author, broadcaster, columnist. Speaking of Euroscepticism, how have things worked out in the UK Post-Brexit, I know uh, you've been writing about this for literally years, probably know the issue better than anyone. How would you say things have gone in a uh, post-Brexit world, or are we even in a fully post-Brexit world? We are now in a fully post-Brexit world. We have officially left. It took us a long time to do that. Uh, There are negative consequences. Uh, One is the situation in Northern Ireland, uh, because we have a land border with the EU that's becoming difficult to govern. Uh, The other is problems with supply chains into Britain because we've gone from people being able to just move anything into the country freely, almost no questions asked, to there now being a great deal of paperwork and uh, companies have struggled to keep up with that. So there have been negative consequences, but there's also been signs of good things coming out of it, which which are, are really about Britain regaining a sense of itself and its independence. So during COVID, Although there's a big argument about how much membership of the EU would have made any difference, um, there is a there's a general agreement that Britain's uh, success in vaccines was because it went it alone and did its own thing and didn't have to follow European rules. And likewise with Ukraine, again, if we'd been a member of the EU, it might have not made much difference. But there's a general recognition uh, that Britain's independent foreign policy, we're firmly behind Kyiv. Uh, it is about Britain sort of rediscovering itself and rediscovering its past alliances. So there's a sense of Britain being unleashed in the last couple of years. 
Uh, a few years ago, and, and this might have been what first brought you to my attention, uh, you wrote a book um, called The Crusader, The Life and Tumultuous Times of Pat Buchanan. I, I'm guessing in the course of researching that book, you probably read more hyperbolic Pat Buchanan columns than any person in America, including including uh, Shelley Buchanan. Uh, you know, I had Pat on the show last week, and he always has such interesting insights, especially when it comes to geopolitical affairs. But there's also always this chorus of folks that call in, that write in, that text me afterwards saying, oh, I don't know why you're giving a platform to Pat Buchanan. He's a, a, an anti-Semite. And these are the same kinds of things that Donald Trump used to say about Pat Buchanan years ago. As someone that has looked at Pat's work and his political career, do you think there's any truth to those allegations of anti-Semitism? I don't think he's personally anti-Semitic. No, I think that on uh, issues which are touched by the problem of anti-Semitism, he has sometimes taken positions which leave him open to the charge of that. That sounds like a very political and diplomatic answer, but I think it is that complicated that he's been drawn into issues where he's taken a position where he's found himself on the side of people who are anti-Semitic. Now, for, the, for example, Israel. Uh, people who are critical of Israel can be critical for a laundry list of reasons, good and bad, and they can be motivated by anti-Semitism. They can be motivated by care and concern for Palestinians. Um, in the course of doing that, they may well find themselves on the side of bad people, and they, mind, they may find themselves inadvertently giving courage and moral support to bad people because that's the position they've taken. Uh, so I, I, think that's, I think that's how that charge arises mm. in the case of Pat Buchanan. Is he personally prejudiced and bigoted? I saw no evidence of it. And uh, but unfortunately, that'll probably look people bring up quotes from 35 years ago, 40 years ago. This is unfortunately probably going to be a charge that dogs him until he dies. It probably is, although I think it's been eclipsed by the number of things that he's got right. Right. I mean, right. Where generally, generally speaking, yeah, the, the conversation around Pat Buchanan in the late 90s was definitely that it was, is this man a neo-fascist? Uh, is he anti-Semitic and anti, uh, anti-Israel, etc.? The conversation around Pat Buchanan now is uh, how did he get so much right? Mm. And I'm, I'm intrigued by the number of mainstream journalists now rediscovering him as a prophetic voice in that period. Uh, it's true. And everything uh, from uh, the Iraq war to manufacturing to trade, uh, you're exactly right, to immigration. Yeah, and, and Russia as well. Uh, he takes a view. I mean, there's a lot of things I disagree with Buchanan on, by the way, including Israel, including Russia. But uh, his, his views on Russia are now being explored and quoted by mainstream journalists mm. who are trying to work out what the right thinks. Um, and I, I suspect – look at J.D. Vance in Ohio. Uh, who's been critical of the of the Russian uh, of, of, the, of the war in Ukraine? He is not a Buchananite. He's not allied with Buchanan. Nonetheless, if you want to understand why Vance thinks what he thinks, if you want a coherent explanation of that worldview, you have to look at Pat Buchanan. Sure. So his his he, he's regained relevance, if anything, in the last few years. Yeah, no, it's a great observation. So tell me about your most recent book. I haven't had an opportunity to read this yet. I am going to order. It's called Whatever Whatever Happened to Tradition. What's it all about? This this is a, a history of and defense of the concept of tradition, which is a huge subject. But what I wanted to explain and explore and, and understand was why it is that it feels in the West like we're losing our tradition, that we're losing our sense of identity. 
And I wanted to explore how that happened and why that happened and make the case for why we need to rediscover ourselves, why we need to uh, show greater faith and, and, uh, and trust in our traditions. I mean, we've, we've just been through the Easter weekend. Uh, it gives definition to people's lives. These traditions bring people together. It gives them a purpose and something to live for. And it teaches them morality. It teaches them how they're expected to behave. So a world in which people shrug off their identity and their traditions. I mean, that can be exciting and progressive because we all like new things and novelty. But it can also leave us derooted from the past. And it can it, it, it means we don't know how to behave and how to respond to crisis and disaster. Well, what's the best way for people to get the, the book if they're interested in buying it? Oh, they can take a look on Amazon. That's all. As much as I, as much as the company has loads them, that's the easiest and quickest way to get a hold of it. Uh, Sturch, uh, Timothy Stanley, uh, whatever happened to tradition? You know, I don't know that I realized. I, I probably did, but I may have forgotten that you actually have a PhD, but you're not pretentious enough, uh, like my brother is, to make everybody he <laughs> interacts with call him doctor. Uh, so uh, I, I must have forgotten that. But you chose to specialize in that advanced degree in U.S. history. Why did you choose to study and specialize in U.S. history rather than British or European history? Because I love America. Uh, I, I think America is a fascinating country. I've always said that uh, Britain is my wife and America is my mistress, my exciting, <laughs> attractive, younger mistress. Uh, it's, it's the most powerful, dynamic, fascinating country in the world. And I think the reason why I'm drawn to its politics is because American political debate is always about fundamentals. It's always a debate about what is America about and for. If you confirm a Supreme Court uh, justice, the, com the debates you have, you, you might find them repetitive and dull and uh, unnecessary and, and theatrical, but they're, they're fascinating because they're always a discussion about, okay, what does America believe in? And is the Supreme Court justice going to stand up for it? And both sides have completely different interpretations of the same history and the same documents. I find that fascinating. We don't tend to do that in Europe, where we take a lot of stuff for granted and we've put a lot of fundamental questions aside until Brexit, which was the, the, the first great debate in British life, in British life of my time. But that's why I find American politics so fascinating. Mm. Uh, it's uh, well said. Well said. One of the issues that uh, is affecting all of the West, you alluded to the situation in Ukraine is the issue of NATO expansion. Now there's some talk that uh, Finland and Sweden may actually join NATO, and this seems to be uh, an announcement welcomed by most of the leading NATO countries. What's your take on NATO expansion in general and uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO specifically? It wouldn't be happening unless Putin had invaded Ukraine. So his his gamble has horribly backfired. He thought Ukraine would crumble and that he would put an end to what he regards as NATO expansion. The opposite has happened. Ukraine has put up a very good fight, thanks to years of uh, uh, Western military support and training. And there are other countries that historically were totally neutral, which have now decided to join, which I can quite understand, because if you see what's happened to Ukraine, you'd want to be under the umbrella of NATO. Now, of course, the, the only problem with that is that the official excuse for the invasion was the expansion of NATO, and NATO is now expanding more. Mm. So if, if the long-term goal is to diffuse and find some kind of solution that both sides can live with because we don't want a direct confrontation with Russia, well, the expansion of NATO just brings us back to stage one. We're, we're back to where we were before. Uh, and Putin will use that as an excuse or a legit legitimate reason to continue to uh, uh, spar with the West. 
So I don't know. No, no, no one's quite sure how this whole thing will be resolved. Um, but the one thing we do know is that Putin's not going to get what he wanted. Uh, that is uh, very clear. And in spite of the the ill-advised and uh, reckless manner in which Putin has carried this invasion, there's been a lot of uh, controversy over President Biden, President Zelensky, and even President Trump's use of the term genocide to apply to what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Do you agree with the three people that I just met? Is Putin carrying on a genocide in Ukraine? Uh, I don't know. It's a very specific legal term, which is why you've got to be careful when you use it. I suspect that part of the reason why it's being used is because the West wants to build long in the long term a case for a war crime war crimes trial. Um, and I suspect that's why the more sober minded people are using it, because they want to build the foundation for a prosecution of Putin. Uh, is it technically accurate? I don't know. I don't know. It's a very it's a very specific term and it may or may not be appropriate. You've got to investigate and prove it. But I think what they're trying to do is bring a charge. It's uh, going to be very interesting to see what develops. Tim, uh, I really hope we can talk again soon. It uh, always just flies by whenever we get together. It's a pleasure. And whenever you're in the mood to visit your uh, your younger mistress, be sure to come visit us in studio. I will do. All right. Uh, Timothy Stanley, read him in the Daily Telegraph and uh, check out his book, Whatever Happened to Tradition. And that Pat Buchanan book, The Crusader, is still available. It's a really interesting book if you want to check that out as well. Comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll do the uh, $1,000 Minute and we'll talk taxes with T.R. Reid. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So, uh, as I described this past weekend, my wife and I spent a lot of time in the car. We were in Chinatown Thursday night. Then Friday, we went to Pennsylvania. Saturday, we went to Midtown. Sunday, we went to the Upper West Side. And obviously went back and forth both ways. So, as you drive certain ways, you observe the things and it sparks conversation. So we're driving on the BQE on either Saturday or Sunday. And my wife looks to the right and she sees a sign that says oh, right on the BQE sign that says Bruno truck sales. You know, the sign if you're heading east on the BQE, it's kind of before it's right before you get to the UL carry tunnel, not quite right before it, but a little bit before it, you know, it, you know, it. it's big. 
And it's not even it's it's nicer than a, a just a regular old billboard. It's uh, almost a wire sign, a big old B, great font. They don't make signs like this anymore. You could tell this sign has been around a while. And my wife said to me, Bruno said, is that place still in business? The sign looks old. I said, no, uh, it is the only sign that remains in the once sign-laden stretch under the BQE. Bruno Truck Sales closed within the last 22 years. It used to be on Hamilton Avenue, where the Harbor Freight Tools is now. And then it reminded me that as I was driving the other way on the BQE, um, maybe about six, seven months ago, I saw a big old campaign sign for a gentleman named John Gangemi, who I knew, and it had his slogan on it, John Gangemi is your friend. Now, John Gangemi was a city councilman in the 1970s. The last time that he ran for office was in the early 80s. His son ran for office in the late 90s, but this was the old man. This was Councilman John Gangemi. John Gangemi is your friend. And somehow that sign was on this building in the year 2021. And this sign had to be from the late 70s, 77, 78. Speaking of council members, speaking of Brooklyn, somebody sent me. Actually, maybe I saw this on Twitter. You know, they have these garbage cans around the city sponsored by Councilman so-and-so, Councilman so-and-so. And someone tweeted a photo of a garbage can in Bay Ridge that says sponsored by City Councilman Sal Albanese. Now, Sal has not been in the city council in Brooklyn since 1997. So that garbage can has got to be the oldest sponsored garbage can in the city. It's going back 25 years almost. So it got me thinking, I wonder what signs, what billboards, what garbage cans, what campaign paraphernalia, what advertisements are still visible to the naked eye not digitally, but out there somewhere that you can drive to it for businesses or politicians that are no longer around. Maybe it's a closed truck store. Maybe it's a politician that died, whatever the case may be. What's out there? 800-848-WABC. 800-848-9222. It doesn't have to be just New York. It doesn't have to be just New York. Um, But obviously my... Uh, uh, the most of the observations that I have are from New York. There was one. There was one billboard. I believe it was in Queens. I'm going to see if I can look this up because I think it was either Curtis or John Katsimatidis that sent this to me. There was one billboard for Music Radio 77 WABC. And that was obviously a billboard that existed before 1982. 
before we flipped formats to a, you know, to a, to a talk station. Now, it's interesting because we now have a lot of music on the weekend. And that, and we call it Music Radio 77 WABC. So it's funny, sometimes things are so old that they're now accurate. But I'm curious, uh, again, like I said, it doesn't have to be around New York. I'd love to maybe do a tour one time of all these old billboards and just visit all these billboards that aren't around anymore. I don't know. I'm probably that's one of the kind of things that I talk about doing, but we never actually end up doing. But if we end up doing it, email me and I'll we'll throw you on our email list. Frank Morano at WABC Can you think of any signage, any billboards that are still out there for businesses that just don't exist anymore? Again, doesn't have to be. In New York, could be anywhere. 800-848-WABC. Coming up in um, about uh, 20 minutes or so, we're going to talk with T.R. Reed. Uh, T.R. Reed is a, an interesting guy and a journalist and somebody who wrote a book on tax policy that I read a few years ago, which uh, I found fascinating. He went on a global quest comparing the tax systems around the world to the tax system in the United States. And because everything that people propose in the United States has been tried somewhere in the world. And he went and explored how it panned out for them. And I have to think that there's a better way to pay our taxes than we do these days because I think our system is just so complex, so Byzantine, and uh, the book that he wrote on that subject is really, really interesting. So I think um, I think you're going to want to listen to our discussion around 4:30. Uh, that's uh, T.R. Reid. We're going to do the we'll do the thousand uh, dollar minute before that. But first, I want to hear your nominations for billboards that are no longer there. Or advertisements that are no longer there. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. They do this. um, They have these forgotten forgotten New York tours. As I was trying to do some research on this subject, I just just found this. I kind of want to go on one of these things. They have all sorts of different tours of, of different places that are different aspects of lost New York. Maybe we'll have, maybe we'll invite uh, this fella, Kevin Walsh, who leads some of these tours on our show, because I wonder if they do one for old billboards. I mean, is there an old sign for, I don't know, the automat or something out there? I don't know. Oh, you know, there's one, somebody I've never, I don't think I've noticed this in person, because this is one of those things that I don't think would have resonated with me. But in Bath Beach, there is a sign for Dime Bank, and Dime Bank is not there anymore. That's one. Uh, The Ulmer Park branch of the Brooklyn Public Library is named for an amusement park and beer garden that opened in 1893 at the Bath Beach waterfront alongside along Gravesend Bay. I I knew about the Ulmer Park branch of the library. I had no idea that 
it was named for this amusement park and beer garden. So what else is out there? Call me. Uh, eight open lines. Now's the time to get through. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And uh, if you find any and get pictures, I'd love to see the photos. And maybe we'll post them. You, you could actually post them in our Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters on uh, on Facebook. Or you can just email them to me at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. As I alluded to with uh, Dominic Carter when I was on with him at uh, 1250, today is the first day of independent nominating petitions. Now, I've slowly come to the realization that I should not be in the trying to build up, to build a new party business this year because I'm just so busy with the show and the baby. And really, up until this week, I was still toying with the idea of trying to do it. But I, just just this week, I'm realizing that it's such a struggle even to read a book or to try and get some sleep to try and qualify a new political party, especially under the new signature requirements, it's more than I can deal with at the moment. So... I uh, uh, it's it, on the one hand, I feel like I've spent my whole life. I feel like Liam Neeson in Taken. I've spent my whole life acquiring a certain set of skills, which in my case is third party politics, and to not to kind of be on the shelf this year, even if I end up helping one of the other candidates that's running for something form their own party. It's just. I don't know. It seems like a waste of decades worth of experience. On the other hand, I'm remembering how frustrating this experience is, the friendships that it costs, the money that it costs, the time that it costs. And it's it's something that was just very stressful when I was in it. So on the one hand, I am a little sad to not be at the forefront of a new independent political party this year. On the other hand, I am somewhat relieved. So um, and it reinstills my desire and my belief that this show is the most important thing that I'm doing professionally anyway, and nothing should be distracting me from that. 800-848-C, that's 800-848-9222, open lines. David is in Manhattan. Hello, David. Hello. Uh, years ago, I, lived, I had a friend that lived on uh, St. Mark's Place. And when you were in his apartment, if you looked across the street, on the side of the building, it was advertising a circus that, that was on that block. This is way before the electric circus uh, was, uh, you know, the St. Mark's electric circus, electric circus. This was an actual circus, and I investigated it. And somebody, so I don't know how they did it. They had a circus on the top floor. They had little, you know, little ponies and uh, a whole act craziness going on. And uh, eventually, I guess they uh, got them out of the building, but the sign remained. And you were only able to use it like near the top of the street on the south side against the building. I haven't been there in that area in years. See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I wonder if it's still there. I have no idea. It was painted. You were able to see it as you were going uh, from west to east on the uh, on on St. Mark's Place. It was near the, you know that, that whole area keeps changing, but 
like a lot of things, you know, it, it was just really interesting. It was, it was always faded, but it talked about a circus. And when I, I you know, I, I, I investigated it, and there physically was somebody had like a little dog and pony show on, a, on like a, almost the top floor of a, of a regular tenement building. And uh, they painted it, and they, uh, you know, they painted it up, and uh, they charged admission into the whole craziness. Well, that is interesting, David. Thanks for sharing that. I'd be curious. I'm there. I'm in that neighborhood fairly regularly. I'll yeah. uh, I'll see if I can take a look, given the directions that yeah. you just gave me. Yeah, it's near the t- it's near the top. It was the side of the building. If you were going, you know, uh, going uh, east, you would see it. But like, who knows? You know, if the buildings are still there. Anyway, that's it. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Eight, thanks, David. 800-848-WABC. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, Frank, there's a great museum in Cincinnati. It's the American Sign Museum. The uh, the journal, the sign magazine, is based in Cincinnati, and the gentleman who runs it has a fabulous museum. It shows all types of the original signs, woodcut signs. Well, I, it's painting. a little different. I mean, that sounds kind of cool, and I would go there. But it's a little different if the sign is still out there in the public. You know what I mean? Right. And that's big down there and over the Rhine. We have an old part of town where they keep those old signs just just because it's so cool, like you said. Yeah. No, well, that's, uh, that's neat, Jay. Thank you. And if I'm ever in Cincinnati again, maybe I'll check that out. It's funny. Vegas has uh, something similar in downtown Vegas. I was just talking about it with um, Gabby, who used to work on our show. Now she works in the digital department. She was just in Las Vegas. They have a neon sign. It's like a neon sign graveyard where they have this collection of old neon signs from old Vegas. They've all gathered them in one place. See, there's something different about that versus passing a thing that says Bruno truck sales. It's just it's just something different if that sign is still out there. So in my view, it is anyway. Hey, I'll tell you what we are going to do. Uh, is uh, in the, we're going to give you an opportunity to be, become a thousand air. If you want to try and answer 10 trivia questions in in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. But let me say hello first to Kevin in Harrison, New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Frank. Yeah, we uh, we had a, a sign in town on the side of a building. You could see it from Route, Route 280. It was a big, big old industrial uh, building. It was called Harrison Equipment. And it was there for like forever, 100 years, whatever. They tore the building down recently, but they opened up a restaurant in town, and it's got this old industrial feel. They made it look like an old factory. And they painted the sign inside the restaurant on the wall, the big sign inside Harrison Equipment. Really, really sharp. They they made it look exactly like the old faded sign on the side of the building. Oh, so so it's like a throwback. Correct. Yeah, it's awesome. It looks like it, you're in an old factory because our town, it's the, the model was the hive of industry. We had all industry in the town, factories, uh, steel mills and all kinds of stuff. But they're all gone now. They tore them all down. Oh, and that it's was like sad. the last one. Yeah. You know, so it is sad of- when that when that happens. And, you know, my my cousins all live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and they used to have a lot of manufacturing down there. And I was uh, disappointed that the casino that's out there, it used to be called the Sands. And I think it was the last Sands property in the whole country. Now it's just the called Wind Creek Casino, which is not nearly as fun, doesn't play into my nostalgia. Did you grow up in Harrison, Kevin? Yes. 
Um, yes. Well, that's uh, and, that's and cool. Another thing we have, you were talking about the old uh, throwback tours. We have tours that come through for The Sopranos because a lot of it was filmed in our area. And in the opening credits of the show, you see a bunch of the signs. There was oh. a Lasky Savings, uh, uh, Pizza Land, Pizza, Satriel's. And the people used to come through all the time, and I don't see them anymore. We don't see well, most of the places are gone. Oh. They're not going down, or the company's changed. Yeah, yeah. Th- that cool. is interesting, Kevin. Thank you for sharing that. All right, time now for the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host, Frank Morales. Thank you, Chris Libertini. All right, uh, let's meet our t- contestant today, Rob and Yonkers. Hello, Rob. Hi, Frank. Rob, you familiar with the contest? Yes, sir. All right, let's get started. The timer will begin after I ask the first question. And if you get one right, we're just going to move on to the next one so we can get through all of them in 60 seconds. Let's do it. What do you call what do you call a place where you can borrow books? A bookstore? We'll take it. Um uh what animal does beef come from? A cow? Who is the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX? Musk. Frogs belong to which animal group? Frogs belong. Uh, which animal group? What's a frog? Uh, Amphibian? Who won the most recent Super Bowl? Uh, oh boy. Cincinnati. Uh, unfortunately not. We gave the answer away earlier, but it was uh, the Los Angeles Rams. So you got uh, you got four questions correct, Rob. I'm going to put you on hold. Molly's going to give you a consolation prize. We're going to talk taxes with T.R. Reed straight ahead. Radio 77, it's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morana. Well, if you're like me, you're still smarting after yesterday's uh, recovering from tax day. Now, congratulations if you've gotten your return done or at least gotten an extension filed. You've lived to fight another day or lived to pay another day. What kills me about my taxes this year is that I owed the state And they yanked, well, I gave it to them, $2,000 out of my bank account. But the federal government owes me. So I'm going to have to wait around a couple of weeks, month, maybe two months for that refund to come back. Now, all I could think is if I'm getting a net amount of money back from the federal government, can't somehow the federal government and the state communicate with each other so that I'm not, I don't have to beg, borrow and steal and collect all my recyclables, take them to the grocery store. So I have enough money in my account yesterday to make sure they can, they can take it. Well, that is one of the many, many things about the tax code that I find 
uh, troublesome, complicated, confusing. And that's one of the reasons why people like me spend a lot of money hiring CPAs to file even very simple tax forms. I've tried to read a great deal about the tax code over the years. I've looked into all sort of, uh, all sorts of alternative tax plans, but by far the best book I've ever read on the tax code and the way that, uh, lays it out simply and explores global alternatives to this crazy system we have here in the United States is a book called A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. Now, the problem with its author, T.R. Reed, is he's just not qualified at really anything. I mean, sure, he was uh, a Princeton graduate. Sure, he was a military veteran. Sure, he's written about eight or nine books, a couple of them in Japanese, translated a couple of books into Japanese. Sure, he's a documentarian, an author, a lecturer. But I'm really hoping uh, now that he's coming on this show, he'll start learning to apply himself and start uh, doing some interesting things. He has reported from more than four dozen countries on five continents for all sorts of publications. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome T.R. Reed. Mr. Reed, thanks so much for joining me. Happy Tax Day. Yeah, happy Tax Day, Frank. You know, we could solve your problem. If you move to Japan, the tax day there is March 15th, and all refunds have to be paid by April 1st. Uh, doesn't that sound nice? Now, I want to get into uh, – you write a lot about Japan and New Zealand in your book, A Fine Mess, which even though it's a few years old, is I think still more relevant than ever given some of the changes the tax code has gone uh, gone over. But as I've alluded to, you've focused a lot on many different subjects over the years. You could have written about anything. What made you choose to write about the tax code and go on sort of this global research project examining the tax code in country after country and comparing it to ours? Yeah, thanks, Frank. I'll tell you how that happened. So, you know, I was a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and PBS. So our family of five Americans lived around the world. And, you know, every once in a while, my son fell off his skateboard in Tokyo and broke his ankle. I had a daughter who had earaches. And we had to go to the doctor. And we discovered that going to the doctor in Japan, Britain, Germany, other countries, was the care was just as good in the United States. You didn't have to wait. And the bills were like one-third or one-fourth of what we paid in the U.S., So I was trying to figure out, how can they do that? How can they provide very good care at one quarter of our cost? And I went around the world to visit doctors, and I wrote a book. It's called uh, The Healing of America, Uh, and it did really well. That book was a bestseller, and my publisher was thrilled by this. So my publisher said, let's do some more. Let's do some more comparative policy and see what other countries do better than we do. And we hit on tax policy because... The U.S. has the most complicated tax system in the world. Uh, it takes people longer. We spend more time and spend much more money than anybody in any other rich country doing taxes. The other countries have figured this out in a way that the U.S. Congress can't seem to do it. And so that's why I went around the world and sort of for, filed Form 1040 in 10 or 12 different countries to see how it worked. 
I think a lot of us can uh, relate to the complicated nature of the problems with America's tax code. I think whatever the tax rate is and wherever people fall, you're always going to find Americans, maybe even just people in general, thinking that their taxes are too high. But is the fundamental problem with the American tax code, the fact that it's so difficult to understand, is that the problem or are there broader problems? That's the biggest problem, I think. Our taxes not too high relative to Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and other democracies, people pay more in tax than the U.S. does. Uh, one reason is the U.S. is able to fund its huge government through borrowing. We borrow more money than any other country. Um, so it's not that the rates are too high. And as a matter of fact, if you believe that rich people should pay a higher rate of tax than lower income people, The U.S. is good at that, too. We have a more progressive tax system than other countries. We've just made it so hard. It's just vastly harder here. In in Japan, for example, and in Britain, a couple other countries, Netherlands, you know, all those lines to fill in your 17% of line 6D and stuff like that, the government does it for you. They know all the numbers. They know how much you earned. They know how much interest you made. They know how much mortgage you paid. And they fill in the form for you and send it to you. If it looks right, you just initial it, and you're done in two minutes. Uh, I w- they do that in Japan. They send out a completed form. If you don't like it, you can do your own. But my, I said to my friend uh, Togo, I said, hey, I want to see you file your tax return. He says, well, I just, I just checked this box. That's all. And I said, gee, that's terrible. You know, in America, people spend weeks or even longer filling out forms and looking up numbers and calculating. And Togo says to me, why would anybody want to do that? <laughs> uh, How we did... don't have to do it. And I mean, return-free filing seemed, and I know different people in America have proposed this over the course of the last half century, and everyone except tax preparers seem to like the idea. But before we get into the the virtues of why this is something America should consider and why it's worked well elsewhere, how did our tax code become so complicated, and why did it become so complicated? You know, it started out simple. The federal income tax began in 1913. Um, Only about 4% of Americans paid tax originally. It was the Astors and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. And the top rate was 9% back then. And then we got into World War I. We got into World War II. We had to expand the tax base to bring in more money. And And then people realized that you can use the tax code to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. Like the federal government thinks it's a good idea for people to own houses rather than rent them. So they give you a tax break for a mortgage payment. That's supposed to encourage people to take a mortgage and buy houses. There's a tax break if you buy an electric car. There's a tax break if you recycle an old tractor. There are thousands of tax breaks in there. And it's a it's a boon to a member of Congress if she can come up with some tax break that helps her constituents like farmers or lumbermen or whatever. Um, she can brag about that. And it's easy to add because in Congress, everybody votes for the next tax break. They all like them. Uh, so it's a function of politicians getting a short term political benefit. And all that adds up to a very complicated return with more deductions, more loopholes than people can keep track of. 
Yes, that's right. So if you give a tax break for electric cars, for example, well, then the people who make hydrogen-powered trucks have that same tax break. So they hire lobbyists. The lobbyists give money to Congress, and Congress can establish that tax break. Uh, it's scratch my back, you scratch your back kind of policy. Um, generally, Congress adds somewhere between 100 and 200 new taxes to the most of which apply to a fairly small population, so we don't know about them. But every one of them requires another line on some IRS form. So we go back to the issue of return fee filing, uh, what Japan does, what other countries do, where you don't have to file your own tax return. The government just does does this all for you. Aside from not having to hire an accountant, why is this why is this better? I, I know you mentioned in Japan, if you don't like the government's math, you can do it on your own and submit it on your own. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to do that. But why is that system better than what we have? Um, well, for one thing, it's much simpler for people. The IRS estimates that an average family spends something over uh, 24 hours a year just gathering data and getting the numbers ready. An average family in the U.S. spends $260 for a tax preparer. A lot of people spend more than that. Um, in Japan and the Netherlands and Britain, that cost is zero. There is no H&R block. In European countries, there's no need for it because they've made it simpler. So there's that. And then people make a lot of mistakes. You enter the number wrong. You put the decimal in the wrong place. You multiply wrong by 18.46% or something. The, if the government fills out your form, they get it right. So, Frank, get this. The IRS every year sends out about 20 million forms called a 1020L notice. And this is a notice that says, on line 38, you entered $4,312, but it should have been 4856 And when I get that, I think, well, if they knew that all along, why did I have to dig through all the records and <laughs> enter that number? They knew it. And they could fill out that form for just about everybody and send it to you, and you could decide if you like it. And the reason they can't is because companies like Intuit, uh, that's uh, tax box, and H block uh, return companies lobby against this. They have successfully lobbied to efforts to have the IRS fill out our taxes for us. Uh, if people just tuning in, we're talking with T.R. Reid. He is a longtime correspondent for the Washington Post. Uh, he's been a reporter all over the world, also a documentarian, author of a terrific book called A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. So it's just because the tax preparers, H&R Block and so forth, have such a powerful lobby and have so much influence within Congress that that's the only thing that stopped us from a return-free filing system? Yeah, that's why every year there are about uh, 20 different members of Congress from both parties who introduce a bill saying the IRS should be able to fill out your return for you if you want, and then you can decide to do it. And this bill never passes because of lobbying, I mean millions of dollars worth of lobbying from the tax preparation industry, not only those, those uh, ones you name, but, you know, tax accountants all over the country form together and fight this. It's their line of work. I mean, it, this is a multi-billion dollar industry helping us do our taxes. Um, it's just galling to me because the IRS knows all the numbers. They could do it for us. 
but we're not allowed to because of the way our politics work. There's a great deal of cynicism among the average American taxpayer, particularly among the average talk radio listener. And a lot of people in our audience, I can almost see them groaning at their radios now. They're saying, oh, you want me to trust the government to know that uh, I'm paying them the right amount of taxes? No, they're always going to try and rip me off. What do you say to that cynical New Yorker or New Jerseyan that has very little trust that the government has their best financial interests at heart about why they shouldn't fear a return a free filing system? Uh, well, the government's main interest is to collect the money at low cost. And the fewer errors they get on tax returns, the cheaper and easier it is for to collect the money that they need to build highways and pay for the army and make sure drugs are safe and all the other things government does. Uh, so that's their main interest. Yeah, I think uh, I, the government would like to take in more money, but mainly they want to make their job as easy as possible. And if they could fill in the numbers, which they already know, they have all those numbers, there'd be fewer mistakes and it would be just much simpler for them to collect the money and be much simpler for us to pay. And it, what, you write in your book that basically we have a real opportunity for tax reform every 30 years. Happened in the mid-50s, happened in the mid-80s, and then, uh, you know, around 2018 it happened again. It seems like all these broad tax reform plans, whether they're bipartisan, whether they're one party or another, they all begin with the same premise. Reduce the number of deductions reduce the number of loopholes and get lower rates. And it seems like everybody, whenever they come up with their plan, that's where we end up. But then when you start going through which deductions to do away with, whether it's mortgage interest, whether it's uh, local uh, property and sales taxes, uh, state and local property taxes, that's when people start howling. Uh, Given the political realities and that every deduction in the tax code has, I guess, some supporters, do you think we'll ever see broad-based tax reform with lower rates, less loopholes, fewer deductions? I think we will. Uh, And the reason I'm confident about that is the year 1986. In 1986, a Republican president, Ronald Reagan, and a a Democratic Congress led by Tip O'Neill got together and vastly simplified the tax code. They eliminated hundreds and hundreds of those uh, deductions. And the way they made people accept that was they reduced the rates. They reduced the top rate of tax from 70% to 28%. So the argument was uh, it's simpler to fill out your return. You don't get the deduction, but you're paying less on the amount of tax you report anyway. Uh, That was a trade-off that worked in 86 In 2017, we had the last big tax reform, and Congress talked about that. They said that's what we're going to do, dump a bunch of deductions and lower rates. Um, In the end, they lowered the rates somewhat and didn't really reduce. Very few deductions were eliminated, so they really didn't do it. They listened more to the lobbyists than to the tax economists. And um, one of the things that uh, that you write a great deal about in your book, and it's something that because Americans have never had this on a regular basis, I don't know that they fully understand it, is the idea of a value-added tax or, or a VAT. In a nutshell, what is a value-added tax? How does it work overseas? How would it work here? Yeah, the VAT was invented in the 1950s. 
It was the best tax invention of the last hundred years. And now uh, about 170 countries, all the rich countries have a value added tax. And here's why it works like a sales tax. You know, you go into a store and buy a coat, it's a hundred bucks, but you end up paying $108 because of the sales tax. But in America, that only applies at the retail level. When you and I go in and buy the coat, a VAT, a value added tax is a sales tax at every level. Uh, The guy who buys the wool to make the coat pays a tax. The guy who buys the buttons pays a tax. The guy, the wholesaler pays a tax. The merchant, the retailer pays a tax. And each time they report to the government, I paid this tax. So it turns out to be self-enforcing. It's a tax you can't avoid. And uh, therefore, it turns out to be a very effective way for governments to raise money. And most of them, when they put in the value-added tax, then eliminate or sharply reduce the income tax because the VAT turns out to be a better way for governments to raise the money to pay for the army and the highways and the other things they do. I mean, it sounds a lot like the tax plan that Ted Cruz uh, ran on when he ran for president, except he didn't call it a VAT. He called it a business flat tax, which is, I guess, something that he felt was more palatable to conservative-leaning audiences. And you write that the VAT tax has become something of a cautionary tale in Washington circles, right? Yeah. So um, both parties kind of oppose the VAT tax. And here's why. The Republicans who don't like taxes call it a money machine. And the reason is quite often the value added tax is hidden in the price of the book. Like uh, if you buy a, a book in Britain for 25 pounds, that book really only cost 22 pounds, 40 pence, and the rest was taxed, but you don't see it. There's just one price. And therefore, it's easy to raise that tax. In mm. fact, during the recession, Britain raised its value-added tax, and nobody knew. So Republicans don't like that. It's a hidden tax. Taxes should be obvious. Democrats don't like it because it's a tax on consumption, on things you buy, and therefore it's regressive. It's a harder tax for poor people to pay than for rich people to pay. Now, there are ways to deal with both of those problems, but because of those two issues, the U.S. has never accepted a value-added tax. And uh, I I mentioned Ted Cruz referring to it as a business flat tax. That term, flat tax, has become very popular in a lot of conservative circles. Steve Forbes, when he ran for president in 96 and 2000, he made that the linchpin of his whole candidacy. And in fact, he blamed a lot of the same folks that you said are stopping return-free filing for not implementing a flat tax, H&R Block and so forth. A lot of other countries, including former Soviet countries like Russia, they've moved in the direction of a flat tax. Given your analysis of the countries that have the flat tax around the world, how would it work here? You think Steve Forbes is onto something? No, it doesn't work, unfortunately. Many people, many uh, politicians have proposed a flat tax. It just doesn't work. As, as you say, it was tried in about 12 Eastern European countries after they got out of the Soviet Union. And as you saw, Frank, I went to those countries in my book, and most of them have given up. It, the flat tax doesn't work. And here's why. Let's say you have a tax where everybody pays 16% of their income. That's the flat rate. Sounds fair, right? Everybody pays the same. The problem is you can't, raise enough, you can't raise enough revenue at, at that one rate 
And so you have to keep raising the rate, 19%, 22%. In Hungary now, it's 27%. And uh, that's still easy for rich people to pay, but it gets harder and harder for poor people to pay 27% of what they buy uh, in taxes. So it's better, and other countries have gradually switched back to graduated rates where rich people pay a higher rate of tax. To me, the important thing about tax is how much you have left after you pay the tax. So you take a guy who made $100 million last year, he pays tax at 37%. He's still got $70 million in the bank. Uh, Whereas somebody who made $20,000, if he had to pay that same flat rate, he'd have almost nothing left. So uh, the flat tax is an interesting idea on paper. It has never worked, and that's why we're never going to do it in America because you can't raise enough money without gouging poor people to do it. Uh, We're here in New York. Our former mayor, Mike Bloomberg, was very into something called a fat tax. He wanted a tax on sugar, wanted a tax on soda. Our new mayor, Eric Adams, is very much into public health issues as well. I wouldn't be surprised to see him proposing something like this. I know Mexico and maybe some other countries have pursued the idea of a tax on sugary foods or foods that make you fat. How has that worked out around the country, around the world? You know, that works. Uh, That works in many countries. Uh, The reason Mexico did it was uh, many, many Mexican communities communities had lousy public water supplies. People actually buying Coca-Cola because it's cheaper to drink than the water in their tap. And so Mexico put on this tax. It sharply decreased the consumption of sugared beverages. And then they used the money to improve local water supply systems so that people could drink water from the tap. It's worked really well, and it's also been connected with a pretty sharp drop in obesity in Mexico and a drop in tooth decay. So countries that put a – Bloomberg might have been right. I don't think he implemented his plan very well, but the idea of taxing sugared foods and sugared beverages has worked in other countries. Penultimately, before I let you go, we hear from a lot of folks on the um, on the side of the climate, the green energy lobby, that what we need to look at is a carbon tax, a tax on pollution to get less pollution going. I know some other countries have experimented with that. How has that worked out? Uh, the European Union has a carbon tax, and it's it's worked quite well. It, I mean, uh, there's there's kind of a stronger political movement in Europe to reduce greenhouse gases anyway, but it has led to a reduction in carbon emissions and it has led to innovations in transportation and manufacturing to reduce carbon emissions. So I I think that's a system that has worked pretty well. Um, the, The problem is there are certain favorite industries. Do you want your local hospital to have to attacked when it runs the furnace and therefore the people write a lot of exemptions it gets complicated but the basic principle seems to have worked in other countries 
lastly, whenever New York raises its taxes, which is far too often for my taste, believe me, we always <laughs> yeah. see a flood of articles about people moving to states with no income tax, like Florida, like Texas, like Nevada. And uh, nationally and internationally, a lot of folks say the same thing will happen. If we keep raising taxes, then we'll see folks that have means to move elsewhere to countries that don't have an income tax. You mentioned a couple of countries, the United Arab Emirates, for one, that have essentially no tax, no income tax, uh, very little, uh, very little other form of tax, no inheritance tax, no wealth tax. Why aren't all of America's billionaires moving to countries like the United Arab Emirates? Well, you get a lot of benefits from living in the United States. And frankly, you get a lot of benefits from living in New York. New York is expensive. Um, you want to, you know, save some money, move to Oklahoma. There won't be a deli on every corner. There won't be a Broadway. There won't be a Metropolitan Opera. So you get a lot of benefits from living in some of those cities. And and uh, the states that don't have an income tax, guess what, Frank? They collect the same amount of money what? through the property tax, the sales tax, the auto tax, the gas tax. You end up paying for government anyway. I often debate people who are opposed to taxes, and I always say to them, gee, how did you get to the meeting hall tonight? Did you build your own highway? No, they drove on a government highway. Somebody's got to pay for that, and we pay for it through taxes. So maybe folks listening to us should think twice before moving to Florida or North Carolina or Texas. I guess that's the message. Uh, yeah, you're still going to pay tax and you're not going to have those fabulous pastrami sandwiches in the deli. Of New York. <laughs> Check out the book, uh, A Fine Mess. It's by T.R. Reed, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer and More Efficient Tax System. Why is America's tax code so, tax code so crazy, so onerous, so Byzantine in its complexity? It doesn't have to be. New Zealand is not. Japan is not. Many other countries aren't. Read the book and uh, see a couple of things that we can do. And as we go into another presidential campaign in 2024, that seems to be the only time we really have a national conversation about taxes, except if it's the every 30-year tax reform debate. Hopefully, some of the ideas that are talked about here can at least be part of the debate, and hopefully, once you're you're hearing them mentioned, you'll at least be somewhat familiar with them. Mr. Reed, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too, Frank. Thanks a lot for having me on your air. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC.
Stevie G and the Destroyers. Um, they're, they're, by the way, I'm told this song will soon be available for purchase. So we'll let you know how you can get it. But we appreciate the efforts he's gone to to help craft our new uh, our new theme song. It's uh, absolutely terrific. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. And uh, that's where you get to sound off for 15 seconds. You can start queuing up if you'd like to be heard at 800-848-WABC. But I heard that promo for Curtis Lee's weekend show, Another Side of Midnight. It's a great show. I listen to it, uh, even though about a third of it is just inaccurate things about me. And, <laughs> you know, I voted for Curtis. I contributed to Curtis. I worked tirelessly on Curtis's campaign, but I can't help but... Notice that promo refers to him as the people's mayor. Now, I don't mean to be a stickler here, but how is Curtis the people's mayor when the people voted for the other guy? Curtis is the mayor of maybe 30, 20, 29 percent of the people. Um, but 70 percent of the public voted for another candidate. They don't specify which people. Right, I guess so. Wouldn't that? person the person that got the actual votes be the people's mayor it's not like like i can understand you don't want to say kathy hochel is the people's governor because she was never elected but the guy that beat curtis was elected pretty overwhelmingly so that's the people's mayor i crashed and burned he could you'd say he's staten island's mayor right because he won staten island overwhelmingly but i don't get that the people's mayor i don't even know what that's supposed to mean Oh, don't listen to the people that actually voted. Listen to the people that would have voted. No. Uh, but it does let me, it does give me a thought. I should be, and Gordon Ramsay's former mistress coined this term for me many years ago. And I agree with her. Her name was Sarah Siren, si, uh, Simons. Now, again, the r- new ratings are going to come out in about seven hours and four minutes. Not that I'm counting. But... um. She referred to me as the people's talk show hosts. Now, I think because I'm the talk show host that everybody's listening to at night, I should be the people's talk show host, right? And I let the people sound off for at least 15 seconds. 800-848-9222, time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Peter Manhattan. Yeah, I longed for the days when the rich were rich and lived fine. Today, these new, uh, this new batch doesn't even have any class, quality, and goods. China? Hey, Frank, would you do a show on China and uh, the secret investments? Jose in Union City. Yes, what the black people in our country need are heroes like Martin Luther King, not communists like Black Lives Matter, Marxist-Leninists. That's what they are. Admitted Marxist-Leninists. They're not for the black people. Pamela in Central Jersey. Uh, the states that uh, don't have income tax, it's true. Like food is nine and three quarter tax and pet supplies, auto repair, it adds up. 800-848-9222. Allen, Manhattan. Three predictions. This war is going to end by the 30th or by the 8th. I predict that there will be parades, and I predict that they're going to just hold the property they have. Pray for Bernie. Uh, Neil on Staten Island. Congratulations to Home to Costco for getting me my new refrigerator, which was back ordered at Home Depot to June twenty third. Let's go, Brandon. That uh, slams the lid on things for today. The uh, WABC early news with Deb Valentine's coming up next. 
Bernie and Sid coming up at 6 with their guest, Bo Deedle. Frank Moreno, good day.